everyone, and welcome to Reitman for the Job, the podcast which takes a look at the works of Ivan Reitman uh, from the, the, his early beginnings all the way through to his most recent output. I'm Dave Babbitt. And welcome to Film Strips. I'm not Andrew Kanegeezer. I'm sure he's perfectly fine and hasn't been murdered by anyone, not by the Yakuza. Why? What did you hear? Oh yeah, but I'm Ross May. Yes, so... You might be a little confused off the the hop here, fo- uh, folks, and, well, this will make a bit more sense here in context. So, yes, this is a special, a crossover episode, if you will, um, because we can't let Marvel and DC have all the fun with the multiverse, it would seem, uh, in this day and age. I think that's fair to say. That's right. Yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> Let's have awkward pauses. Yeah, yeah. I'll... Hi, everyone. Yes, so we are doing a crossover, Reitman for the job, and film strips. I'll tell you the deal with film strips. This is indeed film strips, the podcast where every week, Dave and the late Andrew Kanegeezer watch a film. They dissect it, which is to say they pin it down, screaming, cut it open to see what nuance and subtext they can pull out of its poor mangled body. Either that or they have fun and insightful things to discuss about movies. But they have one rule. One rule, and that rule, that curse is, each movie must somehow connect back to the movie they dissected the previous week. That is their rule, and that is their curse. And me, I talk about Ivan Reitman and Ghostbusters a lot. Yeah, so basically... (laughs) Yeah! (laughs) I was going to say, which makes this a very interesting crossover in the sense that somehow, A... This episode doesn't, uh, uh, the the films we're going to be taking a look at don't necessarily link back to what we're discussing currently on film strips, but at the same time, there is a roundabout way you can connect this to Ivan Reitman, uh, as you... Oh, I've got one, yeah, Yeah. we we both know what it is, yeah. Yeah, so I I guess, Ross, just to let everybody in on it, what exactly are we doing in this weird nebulous crossover that we have concocted. Oh, you mean get to the point? (laughs) (laughs) I guess we should get to the point. Yes. Um, So it was around a year ago and you and I, um, you know, we have lots of chats online and we've been on each other's podcasts, but it was around a year ago and we were talking about um, some film series that we'd like to see. And both of us had Zatoichi the series. Now for anyone who doesn't know, oh, we'll give the rundown pretty quickly here about Zatoichi, but it's a long running uh, Japanese uh, movie series and we had both never seen all of it. And so we made that our project for basically for 2020. Little did we know that 2020 might be, yeah, it's like, like <laughs> this was a ultimately a bad thing, but little did we know that this would be just about the perfect year to have a long film series as a watching project with a friend because it is COVID times. And so we would usually, oh, every weekend or every other weekend, we would watch as a Toichi film. And I really love this series. I'll tell everyone right off the hop, Zatoichi, this is my favorite long-running movie series. Take that Star Wars and Marvel and all the rest of them, that I find this series to be a lot of fun. Absolutely. And I mean, it was definitely one I I been I sort of came through it through uh anybody who's seen the website, the digital bits, uh there. They've been sort of like the at the forefront of covering DVD and Blu-ray news for I can been following them since way back in high school, so about 20 years on my end. And uh, they were always big proponents for the series, so when the Criterion box set came out, I figured I might as well give it a shot based on their recommendations. And 
Uh, yeah, I was not disappointed. This is a overall, not to spoil it too far in advance, this is a delightful and incredibly enjoyable 26 film long series, uh, there. So if you are looking for something that's going to take up once a week, uh, one, uh, slot a weekend every week, this is the one to go with. But you know what? Uh, so we've set people up with like, that's what we did for this year. We enjoyed watching this and talking about it online, you know, every weekend. But now people are probably saying, well, what is a Toichi? This is Japanese. I may not be totally familiar. Well, that means it is the perfect time for a very special bit called The Rundown. Zatoichi is the lead character in the long-running series of films, which are adapted from a short story by Ken Shimazawa. The original 26-film series starred Shintaro Katsu as Ichi, a blind masseur, yakuza, and swordsman who wanders across Japan during the Edo period, drinking, gambling, and often acting as the defender of the downtrodden against corrupt government officials and Yakuza bosses. Beginning life at Daiei Studios, the original series of Zatoichi films ran from 1962 to 1989, with Katsu gradually taking on a larger role in the production of the films, including directing two of the latter entries. Following the end of the series, three non-related films featuring the character of Ichi would be produced. Coming up next, Tim Matheson's 30-minute concept video for an American adaptation of Gamera, You've heard the rundown now, and so you've got the bare-bones idea of this. But David and I, you are an educator. Yes, I am. And so am I. And so all of you might be asking, this is a, a strategy that we do in classrooms. Why should the listeners out there care? How is this going to affect their daily lives? How are they going to use this knowledge to help do their taxes? Well, the answer is uh, Daredevil. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So. Well, well. Okay, I'll get to the point of it. So, uh, Zatoichi, the first movie is in 1962, and the story is even older than that, but we're focusing on the movies, of course. Uh, starts in 1962. A few short years later, uh, Marvel starts producing uh, the blind superhero, Daredevil. Matt Murdock, he's blinded and uh, starts jumping around New York. For years, Daredevil is sort of the B or even C tier Spider-Man. He's just he doesn't hold a title forever. He is not the most popular character over at Marvel, and that's Daredevil. But at the same time, of someone who was reading those comics was a young man named Frank Miller, who was also um he got to see a lot of Japanese cinema, including uh Lone Wolf and Cub, and uh, another film series he watched was Zatoichi. Um we're all pretty sure that uh Stan Lee and people at Marvel probably originally never saw the Zatoichi movies, but Frank Miller did. So come the 1980s when they say, hey, no one cares about Daredevil. Here's this title. You can do whatever you want with it. Well, he saw a connection because, oh, Zatoichi is a blind hero who has incredible and we'll get into it, fantastic abilities that, of course, that ultimately, you know, real blind people do not have this level of fighting prowess. But uh, he takes that idea and says, what if I take all these Japanese elements that I, <laughs> that frankly he loved to an insane degree? Frank Miller, if you ever see, if you see the movie Wolverine and why Wolverine starts fighting ninjas and why Wolverine sometimes has a sword, he gave a sword to the one Marvel superhero who did not need swords. He had knives on his hands. He did not need a katana. Well, but he yeah. makes... Yeah, yeah, and I know. But yeah. he ma he makes Wolverine into samurai stuff. And he uh, takes Daredevil and says, oh, 
he should be sort of a ninja. He should be like he should be like Zatoichi, and also he should have a blind uh, teacher. And also he's going to introduce characters like Electra, who is Greek but also a ninja. And oh, by the way, now uh, the Kingpin, who before uh, was Sydney Greenstreet. Now he's into Japanese art and he's into sumo wrestling. Frank Miller, like he always did this. Every time he said, "Like I love Japanese things and Japanese cinema," and he and he he just put it everywhere to a point where I find it ridiculous. But today, if you watch the Netflix series Daredevil, if you read uh, modern Daredevil comics. Uh, a lot of Zatoichi is in that character now. It's baked in all the Japanese elements. A lot of the ninja elements are based off of these movies that uh, you know, I think a teenage Frank Miller read. Uh, excuse me, watched. Well, yeah, I mean, Miller, yeah, he wears his influences on his sleeves. And I mean, there's as ridiculous as this is, these are not necessarily the most overt ones he's even done. I mean, he would later go on to do the comic Ronin, which, I mean... The name alone tells you exactly where Miller's going with that one. So, I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, Miller definitely borrows heavily for his films, and certainly uh, for anybody, or for his comics, and for anybody who's seen uh, or read any of his comics, this sometimes gets into problematic territory, uh, to put it mildly. He also, uh, oh yeah, like, he, he is not the best person. Also, really proves the point that he, uh, someone can be totally in love, totally enamored with another culture, and also be really racist. I, that guy. Ah. Well, yeah. And that, and that's Frank Miller. Yeah. Yeah. That, that that's the thing. I, the weird thing with Miller is, I always get the feeling that he thinks he's doing right by people and and by different cultures. And yeah, uh, Frank, that's that's no, just no. But uh, but on to more positive territory. Um, so. Visadoichi movies, so... But yeah, so moving on to the Zatoichi series itself. So yes, it starts out as a short story. And um, what we should probably do before we get into its main star, Shintaro Katsu, we should probably talk about Dae Films, yes. which a lot of people out there, again, are probably not super familiar with Dae, but Dae was... It was a known quantity. And uh, its other most famous series some people might be very familiar with it's Gamera as yes. in the Godzilla, the, the best uh, Godzilla knockoff. Yeah. Which is putting, putting it mildly. I mean, the, the camera movies are, if Godzilla is basically mainstream Kaiju cinema, uh, Gamera is just the weird oddball, uh, sibling to that series. And I do mean weird, uh, when you get into it, it is, I mean, for anybody who hasn't seen it, it's about basically a rocket-powered giant turtle that loves children and yet will still go around smashing things in the process. It's... choices were made. We'll, we'll say that for now with it. But yeah, I mean, Gamera is uh, sort of an ongoing series. It was a big... but yeah, in terms... it's hard for me to at least say... Uh, I don't know how big they were in Japan or where they sort of sat in the stature. I think most North American audiences are familiar with Toho uh, overall. I mean, that's the big one. That's the one who's had so many films make their way over to North America uh, over the decades here. And Dae is 
not so much. But that's not to say they weren't prolific from everything I've seen. Uh, and certainly from what I've read about them, they were definitely the practitioners of sort of ongoing episodic film series, uh, which would crank out different entries. And certainly... Uh, with uh, Katsu himself, as we will eventually discover, uh, Zanoichi wasn't the only series he was doing for them at the same time. So, yeah, so Daie Films, if Toho is one of the premier uh, film studios in Japan to this day, they are a Warner Brothers, they are a Paramount equivalent. Daie Films, it's a it was a known quantity at the time, but it was always on its back foot in terms of finances. It was always, I mean... Gamera right there sort of proves the point that they were trying to copy the success of other uh, of other film studios. I think I once made the comparison that they are like the Orion films in Japan that we are familiar with Orion films. But, you know, like what is their financial situation? They've sort of gone away. What's up with them? And that's kind of Daiei films. Back in the 60s, they're trying to play catch up to these other bigger studios and one of their uh, players under contract is an actor named Shintaro Katsu. Yeah, and Katsu is somebody who, I mean, again, not going to pretend to be an expert here, but his sort of family history and his way into the film business is rather interesting because effectively he comes from a family of musicians uh, originally. And from what I understand, the intent was supposed was that he would be one of the ones to take over the family business, as it were, and go into that profession uh, going forward, which doesn't end up exactly happening uh, at the end of the day. Yeah, it's interesting because um, so Shintaro Katsu and someone you can look out what his real name was because that's his that's his uh, stage name. But he and his brother and his brother was an actor too. His brother, if anyone out there has seen the uh, Lone Wolf and Cub movies, not the TV show, but the movies, uh, that's his older brother. So they are brothers and they both became actors, but their dad was a very um, well-respected shamisen player. Now, shamisen is the uh, Japanese instrument that sort of looks like a guitar, the same principle, and you play it with a pick. And both the sons were very good at playing this, but they both wanted to become actors. Shintaro Katsu, he picks out his name. I, I've seen him in a few other movies playing bit parts and... They always kind of figure, well, can he be a romantic lead? Well, no, he can't. He is not a... <laughs> we can also say it straight up. Like, in the same way that Daiei Films was trying to play catch-up to Toho, in a lot of ways, Shintaro Katsu, like, can he be as big a star as some of the other guys? Almost with Zatoichi, but on all his other roles, is like, can he be in a romantic lead? Well, he's he's a perfectly fine-looking guy, but like, no, he's he's not quite handsome. He's not quite handsome enough for that. He's not quite all these other leading man roles until he tries out in the Zatoichi films. And that's where everyone, Oh, this just really works. And part of what really works about it is he's comes off as very friendly. Um, he's good at the fight scenes. He's also, uh, uh, without trying to insult anyone who is visually impaired, he is a full sighted man. He looks very convincing playing a blind man, the way that he walks around the way that he, does or does not look at other people and enemies that you get convinced for a while in these movies that, oh, that this is a fighter who is also happens to be blind. And it's very um, compelling. Well, absolutely. And I think the thing that really, the, the, what you're sort of pointing to is the physicality of Katsu on screen really is the big thing here. Because he is somebody who, 
like he's got a very expressive face and he very much uses his body very expression uh, expressively as he's performing this character uh basically because yeah he doesn't have access to uh his eyes in terms of playing the performance in fact he very uh right you might expect that maybe they would do something like give him contact lenses or something to that effect that's not what happens uh with katsu he's almost always in this squint uh throughout the films which it, it took me a while to figure out that that was going to be the choice that he was going to play throughout the rest of the films uh to go with that as opposed to say using the prosthetics which we'll see other actors uh in the ichi series uh do that later on uh i.e the films not connected to this one uh, or to this yeah. franchise um but i mean yeah katsu i mean there's something there's that level, but there's almost almost like I think the other big thing that works for him is that you're right. He doesn't have the traditional leading man looks that you would expect. He's not the square jawed hero. There's almost something kind of baby faced or childlike about him, particularly early on when he has the shaved head look uh, for the yeah. early films there. And it gives and it, again, this works in its the film's favor where because of how often he, the character ends up interacting with children over the course of the series. There seems to be that sort of natural association where he is, in many ways, obviously he's an adult, and obviously he has some very adult relationships, we will say, over the course of these movies here. Um, but he is somebody who seems more enthusiastic, open to life, and is very much... Hedonistic would be too much to uh, to put it, but he's very much somebody who is very much driven by sensation and ta uh, and the th things that he can sense around him in that way. And Katsu very much captures that in his performance. Though. Yeah. Before we get into the films itself, maybe we should just talk about <laughs> just because it's so darn interesting. Maybe we should talk about a bit more about the man, including like later in life. <laughs> so yeah, so I know yeah. because he, uh, read up his biography, everyone, because he was a f fascinating and frankly an awful kind of person. Um, got married at some point, probably not not too long after that. Um, uh, notable for cheating on his wife. Um, drank too much, smoked too much, like a, like a lot of, uh, uh, men in, uh, of his age, like smoked too much, got into cocaine, um, in some of the later movies, um, just cast his partying friends as some of the bad guys and they'd have fights together, which are, which I, I will say is still convincing, uh, cinema a lot of the times, but these are like, oh, these are your drinking pals. Um, Notably, in 1990, uh, he flew to Hawaii uh, with uh, marijuana, which ultimately didn't really matter that much, but also some cocaine that was found at the airport. It was tucked into his underwear. And so and so uh, he was asked, like, well, why is there cocaine here? He says, I don't know. I didn't put that there. And this be and that wasn't really big news in America because, you know, why should it like not a not a whole lot of people were familiar with him. But back in Japan, this became a field day. And so, like, I, apparently for a few years, like, people would joke, that, like, I don't know how this got there. It's sort of like Bart Simpson with the <laughs> I didn't do it boy thing. Yeah. And, like, Shintaro Katsu just becomes a, a, a bit of a joke that, like, that, that, like, oh, he had cocaine stuffed down his pants. And, and he, um, his health deteriorated. He died only, like, in his 60s, but he looked older than that. Like, a lot of partying just some rough living and so he could have lived on longer his wife his his widow is still alive and she appears on tv every so often but yeah that that he died i think in his 60s but he looked you know t maybe 20 years older than that 
and that's and that's his life. But so it, oh, and we also watched a documentary where he is very rude and demanding of everyone around him. And I guess what you can still say is, is pointed out is he was still a very compelling actor, which doesn't excuse his bad behavior, but just it, what an interesting person he is. And we can say interesting now that we don't have to deal with him. But and that's and that's the life of Shintaro Katsu. Well, and that's the thing. And I, I mean, I feel it's fascinating. I'm trying to think of maybe the equivalent of an American actor, like maybe like a Tom Watlin uh, who starred in the Billy Jack films or even uh, Australian actor Paul Hogan, where they really get identified with one character above and beyond anything else. Because the thing we haven't really mentioned about Katsu is that he didn't just play Zatoichi for 26 films over the course of basically uh, 20 years. He also did a tele a long-running television version where he was effectively the man in charge of running the show and starring in it as well, which is when they shoot this documentary uh, that's included in the, I guess now discontinued Criterion set, I, which is a shame. Actually, uh, actually, yeah. things have just changed uh, recently, like maybe even a month ago, I saw, for, every, for anyone who is interested in watching these movies later, uh, you can see them on the Criterion channel. Um, yeah. You could maybe just look around yourself. I was first introduced to them. I found uh, the Criterion set uh, at my local library. So everyone, if this sounds interesting at all to you, what I would recommend first is maybe go to your library and uh, see if they have a copy and uh, take take out the first disc or first couple discs and see if you really enjoy these movies. If you do happen to really enjoy them, uh, yeah, even a month, two months ago, um, the Criterion set was going for like $1,000. It looked discontinued to me. And just recently, um, I see now that it is going, it is it is still an expensive set. It's it's around $200 Canadian. Yeah. Maybe 100, 140 American. American. I think I think what happened recently is that Criterion has put them back into print. Good. So you could get them if you want. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah, because that was around what the original price was. It was around the $200 uh, price point for that, uh, here in Canada at least. Um, and trust me, folks, it's a handsomely produced set there. You're not going to be disappointed. Maybe, I mean, if you're expecting more in the way of special features, uh, like some of the other Criterion sets out there, you might be slightly disappointed, but when you consider the sheer quantity of material uh, in terms of just the films themselves, I kind of understand why uh, they probably didn't have the budget uh, to do much else beyond that. But um, but yeah, so I mean, I, I guess the thing to get into the Zatoichi thing is so to come back to sort of the origins of this franchise here. So Katsu himself is trying to sort of find his niche in the Japanese film industry as an actor, and Eventually, they sort of settle on the idea of him less as the handsome lead and more of a somewhat villainous or at least anti-hero persona that comes with him. And that leads us to, I think, the big film that is the lead into this one that you introduced me to, Ross, uh, as part of this. And that is the film The Blind Menace from 1960, which... You might uh, sit there and think is from the title, it's like, oh, is this a Zatoichi precursor? And you would be right. Sort of. <laughs> yeah, Blind Menace, or I think it's real. I mean, that's what we call it in English. I think in uh, Japanese it translates to Secrets of a Court Masseur. Um, it's interesting because it is very much, it's a prequel in terms of 
die this is die's prequel it involves a lot of the same cast a lot of the same producers uh, it has uh, it's one of the few movie excuse me it's one of the few movies that has uh, katsu's wife in it with him and it's also based on a short story but instead of being a good guy katsu comes in he is a uh, blind man who you know, surprises the audience and can surprise people by he's able to kill people. He's able to do lots of horrible things. It's a mean movie, frankly. So the point is, do not underestimate this man, even though he's blind. And he said, like, I think I know how to play a blind man. And by gosh, he does an excellent job in this very mean, very villainous role. Yeah. And I we should emphasize when we do mean, mean and villains like this is like reprehensible behavior from start to finish. This is not a fun villain necessarily to follow. He is despicable uh, from start to finish uh, there. And yeah, you would sit there and think that it's kind of hard to look at this movie and say, well, how do we get from that to the champion of the downtrodden, which we will eventually see in the Zatoichi movies. And it's not quite just a direct, they saw him in this and decided, oh yeah, well, we'll just work with this. Uh, because I believe he starts with, is it the Hansel the Razor series, I think begins prior to the Zatoichi series? Oh no. Did, no, did that come next? I don't know. Yeah. Everyone, the Hansel the, the Razor movies, and that sounds awful, and I have not seen any of those movies, but they are based around like sexual assault oh geez like yeah oh no <laughs> yeah th that's the thing but it was one of the other series he was doing for die which you know was at least uh for him basically you know sort of the start of uh his sort of career uh now maybe i am wrong maybe hanzo came later but it certainly was a big component of his career going forward ultimately the big thing with yes we can uh work with the uh him and maybe shape a more heroic character who we could keep coming back to uh with him in the in a similar uh role here and this ultimately leads them to coming across the short story of Zatoichi which ultimately becomes the basis for the first film and it's interesting i think looking back at that one so we should probably yeah, start with that first movie itself which is uh the tale of Zatoichi which is i believe 1962 if i'm getting my yep. dates correct here and this one is a very uh if you're going in expecting like a sort of straight up pulp film from this one that's not what you're going to get. In fact, I mean, it's kind of interesting that this would become uh, an ongoing series. And this might just be, you know, from expectations you get from being a North America, from a North American context. Uh, and maybe this makes more immediate sense uh, within its uh, home cultural context here. Uh, but the film is directed by Kenji Mizumi. Uh, do not quote me on my pronunciations here, folks. I am likely botching it. Um but basically, it follows, yes, the Zatoichi as he basically becomes involved in a uh, uh, romance with a local woman, uh, uh, if I remember correctly. Otane. Otane, yes, thank you. There. Yeah. Uh, there, as he also becomes sort of involved in a Yakuza battle that's happening, a sort of dispute that's going on. And again, as we discovered, he is a member of the Yakuza himself. He is a blind swordsman, but he's also this traveling masseur. And... As he goes on, basically, yeah, this ends up being much more of a sort of low-key character drama than it is what we would consider sort of a contemporary action film, or ultimately where the series would end up going over the course. So it really is a sort of quiet, meditative film up until its third act. 
uh, over the course of it. And there were certain choices made behind the scenes. Like, it was shot black and white. From what I understand, that was more budgetary uh, than it was anything else. More of a sort of hedging of bets on the case of Daae itself that... They didn't want to spend the money uh, in case this thing was a bomb uh, for them. And yeah, well, oh, sorry, I'm sorry. Well, well, yeah. Just speaking of going back to the idea that Dae, you know, they copied a lot of trends from other movies. So, uh, like Yojimbo came out the previous year, didn't it? And that was also black and white too, by the way. But um, so the this new idea of samurai, which yes, everyone comments on that. Hey. Yojimbo and uh, Seven Samurai, that becomes in the West, Westerns, uh, A Fistful of Dollars and The Magnificent Seven. But there's actually a lot of back and forth between uh, both countries on that sort of cinema, because what a lot of not what a lot of people don't realize about, say, Yojimbo is that if it looks like a Western, that's because its director, uh, Akira Kurosawa, was totally aware that he was making a new kind of samurai film that was closer to being a Western. It's a dusty town. Uh, he was making this anti-hero when prior to that, there were fewer samurai anti-heroes. Like that was, if people sort of have this idea of Toshiro Mafune as sort of the standard uh, Japanese uh, hero, like that was a new thing in the 60s in the same way that uh, Clint Eastwood was a new thing in the 60s as well. So like there was sort of this rise, there was sort of this trend that came at the same time. And so the next year you've got Zatoichi and Dai is kind of doing the same thing. They're saying like, okay, we've got this actor. He had some success in other films, especially in, uh, not Hanzo the Razor. He had yeah. some success in Blind Menace and he, he played a blind man convincingly. Oh, we've got this short story where he could convincingly play this, uh, this anti-hero and he's not a samurai but he's the lowest of the low he's a low class man that's what his name really means like zato is not his name zato represents the fact it's like uh low status that uh, of a masseur itchy is also a bit of a pun it's sort of like saying guy but like if someone has the name itchy um that sort of indicates that the person is probably a masseur. So his name, his name is only one step removed from the man with no name or Yojimbo, which means a bodyguard. His name, his name is almost mysterious in that Zato Ichi. It just means low class masseur. But here he comes in and uh, he's one of the common people. And yeah, he gets into this Yakuza fight where it's basically two gangs that are warring over a town and they want to take advantage of him where Yojimbo it's the character Mafune is playing off each other and being conniving and trying to take advantage of the situation and get them all killed. Uh, Zatoichi is more about, he's just trying to get a few bucks, get some meals and he wants to get out of there. He doesn't want to fight, which is a totally reasonable thing to do, but Satoichi gets involved with, as we said, Otane in town and he's getting sort of pressed into does he have to fight in this and also there are elements such as there's a samurai in town there is a there's a ronin which becomes an ongoing thing in the films there's always a rival they yeah. are usually a, they, yeah they're usually a ronin and it's it's split almost 50-50 half the time they are noble um down on their luck ronin who need to make money a lot of the time they have children that they need to raise or they've got a spouse that they're trying to get some medicine for so like they they are noble but like circumstance says like like i gotta make some money and part of that means i gotta fight this 
guy, Ichi, who I really respect. And that's in the first movie as well. In a lot of the other movies, half the time, it's uh, they're total sociopaths. And they just delight in torturing people. And then that ultimately comes to a head with Ichi. And I find that first movie, like right out of the gate, like it's black and white. And it's, I think it's just a great movie. And like you say, like there's a lot of, it's not just all action. What it is, a lot of it is, how does the Toichi make his way through the world that he is a blind man? Nobody thinks anything of him until they realize, oh, wait, he can do things like, and this is, this is the fun bits of Zatoichi where a lot of editing comes into play. They'll undercrank the the film, and you you know what they're doing. They undercrank the film so that suddenly um, he moves faster than you'd expect, and he'll do things like cut a candle in such a way that he splits it in half, but it's still burning. He is so fast that that his blade moving does not extinguish the fire. Or yeah. he'll or he, yeah or yeah or like great things such as he can, uh, a big thing in these movies is gambling. And uh, and in the gambling halls, it's always it's playing with dice and they're uh, they're rolling the dice in the cup, bring the cup down. And you have to guess whether it's an odd or an even number. And you're betting all your money on this. And Zatoichi can do things such as slice the cup in the person's hand and he can say, like, no, you're, you're cheating. Like, you got to use the right dice stuff like that. And there's a lot of these editing tricks that are, you totally know what they're doing, but they're so much fun. And, and everyone's just astonished that this blind man could get the better of them. Well, absolutely. And one of the things I really appreciate about the series, it sets up right from the first film is that it's not like Ichi is a perfectly honorable figure. It's not like he is the hero with the heart of gold or that he's pure noble. Like we straight up say that he is totally willing to use uh, his disability to help play with the uh, the people around him and take advantage of them. So he can basically con them while gambling with them. It's like, oh, you were betting on the outside of the cup while I was doing this? Why would you possibly do that? And of course he knows exactly what he's doing. And But the way Katsu plays it, it's just like that feigned indignity um, <laughs> that he approaches to sort of shame everyone, which doesn't necessarily prevent them from trying to kill him ultimately, but at least it buys him a little bit of time and occasionally it works in his favor. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, that first film, it really does set the tropes and it really does set the template for most of where the films afterwards would go. It's just, the pacing's a little bit different. It's definitely more meditative overall. And you can tell they were maybe hedging their bets on the idea that maybe there would be follow-ups, maybe there wouldn't be. Um, the tale of Zetoichi continues from the exact same year, which gives you the good indicators to just how quickly they could crank these films out. Uh, and we should note the majority of this 26-film series happens within, like, in the first 12 years of its existence uh, there. So this isn't a case where, like, they cranked out 26 films over the course of 20 years at a rate of generally one a film a year. They pretty much cranked out most of these things within that 12-year 12, 12 span, and then there was just that extended hiatus until we got the last one in 1989. Um, yeah, I, I read somewhere there they were explicit that Dai films that... A lot of films, I'm sure this is not the only series, but especially the Zatoichi series, that they were designed to compete with uh, Japanese homes getting television. And so these are basically, they are like, you know, more expensive and bigger uh, TV episodes. And it's this, so it is this neat middle ground of being episodic, almost, you know, like a very, uh, like a high quality uh, movie serial or a TV show or something and being standalone films. And I find that a lot of fun. 
Well, absolutely. And I mean, it, it makes sense because, I mean, this is very much for, uh, a series that's not dissimilar from uh, what was going on in the West with the James Bond films. And for anybody who's watched the early Bond films, one of the things that's notable is that particularly that first 20 or so year stretch is that they were very much designed with the idea that these would not necessarily be seen uh, on a regular basis by audiences. Like they would basically see one in a theater and that would probably be their one opportunity, and then they would go see the next one, so on. And in, in the case of the Zatoichi films, my understanding is that, uh, particularly for the early ones, they were released around uh, major holidays. Uh, so effectively serving as tentpole films like you see in contemporary uh, Hollywood cinema, in terms of how they structure their release dates. But the big thing here is that they would reuse actors all the time, which the Bond films early on were, were notorious for doing. This one takes it almost to another level, though. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, where you basically have the same actors, like, cranking or turning up in within, like, the first, uh, within basically, like, one movie of one another in roles that are ostensibly the same as they played the last time, but with a different name. Um, and they're sort of counting on the idea that, obviously, you weren't seeing these things so close to one another that you would uh, rem uh that you wouldn't remember that oh yeah that individual was in this film last time as well basically playing the same guy but with a different name uh there like again the yakuza bosses in particular this is a trope that definitely happens uh or there's a couple guys who are always the same as like hey it's that yakuza boss that he killed like three times already but like but he's so but that that one actor is so good at that role it's like yeah sure like like use him again <laughs> why not it, it's it's good and bad because um like the actress playing otane and i'll maybe we'll move away from the first movie into like, cause I want to say the first four movies, um, the first four movies, it forms a good little quadrilogy. That's right. Everyone trilogies done. They're over They're They're old hat quadrilogies. That's where it's at. But I find it really compelling because they didn't know that they were going to get to four and more movies. So the first four movies tell, keep building off one another and a big through line of that is his love of Otane which we won't give away where that happens but it goes in so many different ways that you can tell that oh they weren't expecting this series to be uh, the success that it is and the same actress keeps on coming back and she is very good at it and then sometimes also so like you can remember like, oh, I, she did this last movie and then they met and they, they couldn't be together in this movie but meanwhile there's like one young actor who he plays a bad guy in two of the movies, the, the same, the same character, even he plays the same character over a couple movies. And then he comes back for the fourth movie and he's totally a different guy. And, and, and like, it's confusing at first. Like, well, I saw you last weekend. I thought that you were trying to kill Zatoichi and now you're good friends with him. Like, oh, okay. Like she, she is playing the same character. This guy over here is not. And so that is the one, probably the biggest confusing part, especially in the earlier Zatoichi movies. Yeah, and I mean, it's one of those things, yeah, particularly given that, yeah, there is that really tight continuity for those first four films. Mercifully, as the series goes on, as the continuity loosens up, it becomes less of an issue where you're. it's easier to forgive or it's like, okay, you're clearly playing a different person. I'm not supposed to remember you as being the same person as last time or not uh, in this instance. And that works, in some ways that works to the series' favor. In other ways, it sh it's a shame to lose that sort of ongoing character arc and through line that those first four movies have. 
But that's kind of inevitable with the direction the franchise ends up going in uh, over the course of it. So, yeah, so, I mean, those those first four movies, which takes us up to uh, The Tale of Zatoichi Continues, which is picking up at least, yeah, thematically from the first film, if not necessarily narratively uh, for that one. New Tale of Zatoichi, which really is a direct continuation uh, of Tale of Zatoichi itself, uh in many ways. Uh, yeah, well, uh, just cutting in, a really interesting thing is that th- what does actually carry throughout the entire film series is, so um, he really shows up one of the Yakuza gangs in the first movie. The only really recurring thing throughout the entire series is it's actually that same Yakuza gang from this one town. They have a contract out on Zatoichi, so everyone else Basically, basically everyone in Japan, if you're a criminal, most of them want to kill him to collect on uh, to collect on that contract. And so that becomes the only thing. So you get to like movie 10, 11, 12, and it's generally not a big thing. It doesn't talk about all the time. But like, who are these guys? Who are these four guys who came to kill Zatoichi is like, well, they were contract. They were uh, they know about the hit out on Zatoichi from the first movie. And so that's the only thing. And it becomes this sort of really compelling thing when you get towards some of the last movies because uh some of the gang members they don't have the original actors anymore they've got some of the gang members from that original town and they're thinking like is this the time that zatoichi's finally gonna die and zatoichi even sees it's sort of i can't think of a good other movie for an example like he sees the doors closing in on him as like is this the final time where my past adventures are finally going to come back and finally do me in and I might as well give it away. Like in those last couple of movies, ultimately no. Like he he still he still is a good enough fighter that he can save his own skin. But it becomes really compelling stuff that that uh, these things that he did, you know, sixteen years ago, and that they're trying to get him, and that can he get away? Like 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 he's he's fighting against his own past self. Well, that's the thing that, that that's interesting, and I guess this does speak to one of those things, which is the sort of timeline of the Ichi films is. Again, it, while watching him, it really doesn't matter, but it's also the sense of trying to figure out exactly how much time is passing for this character over the years as well. That gets harder and harder to read, because let's just say Katsu ages very well over the course of these movies here. Uh, and I think they, if I'm remembering correctly, they established that, like Ichi's supposed to be like in his 20s, which I'm not sure Katsu ever reads uh, as being that. Uh, he always reads a little bit older to me, even in that first film. Well, I thought he was definitely 30s, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but he, he still is, I mean, even with that, I mean, over the course of, like, the, the majority of those films, he ages pretty reasonably, and it helps later on as he starts growing out the beard and his hair gets longer uh, as, as the series goes on, that it sort of covers the aging factors that may or may not be going on at that point in time. But at, at a certain point, you have to start asking yourself, it's like, who hasn't Ichi ticked off in Japan in terms of the Yakuza uh, <laughs> over the course of this? Because at a certain, I mean, that's the one buy-in you have to have with the series is that basically the Ichi can continue to keep going on over the course of his adventures and basically assume that there are still towns he can hit where he isn't wanted or that they don't want to kill him. Because and, uh, This will become particularly important as we get to uh, one of my personal favorites, not to spoil this too much in advance, uh, Zenoichi and the, uh, goes to the Fire Festival. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> there, but, um, but that, I mean, that's the thing where eventually, yeah, the, the series settles into a very 
uh, stand not just a series of set tropes and character types that we will encounter over, but there's the rhythms of the films that it seems to that they all seem to move at, and they all have generally really good pacing for the most part because the majority of these films are like ninety minutes or less. Uh, and those are always the better ones when they try to go for two hours. I always find that there's something that's not working. Yeah, that that they are better. And even at 90 minutes, everything the action can just stop. And he's, you know, he, uh, Zatoichi, like all the gangsters want to kill him, but he always befriends the people in town. Also, like a Western, you know, sort of cowboy drifter hero. But he makes friends in town, and he just has these quiet moments where he's just contemplating his life and whether he can settle down or not. And ultimately, he decides, like, also like a uh, cowboy, like, no, I, I got to keep on going. But there's great scenes in a lot of them. Like, in one, a woman asks him, like, they're, they're talking about his past, and she realizes, hey, did you used to be able to see? And this is where you find, like, you never get the full backstory of Ichi. But he says, like, yes, when I was born, like, I, uh, my eyes worked. Is, well, what happened? Well, something horrible happened when, uh, in around the same time, I was living with my dad. He no mention of his mom in this movie, but I was living with my dad and something terrible happened to me. And I got separated from my dad and I lost my eyesight. And it's just this horrible sounding thing. And then he just sort of has to go on from that. And sometimes like he chuckles even at after talking about his own miseries, like, yeah, but that's my life. I've got, I got to keep going. I've got to keep on doing things. Or like, there's another moment where, uh, uh, the the woman she asks him like she's talking about the sun or something which he always enjoys that's that's the one thing about uh, Itchy is that uh, because he cannot really see nature around him so that he can feel the heat of the sun that's sort of how he marks a lot of the weather and uh, she's talking about she realizes, she realizes like oh I'm sorry like do you know what color is like do you remember what color is and he says when I first went blind I promised myself you have to remember what color is what it, what red looks like but I forgot. And it's this totally heartbreaking thing from this guy who, who, I don't know, like a Western hero, like the, like the incredible Hulk. He, he wants the world to leave him alone and to, to let him live in peace and they just won't let him do it. And so he's got it like, fine. Like you're all messing with me. You're messing with all my friends. I'm going to kill all of the bad guys. And then he does. And well, you just feel, and you feel so satisfied about it. So like everyone, all the bad guys are just such jerks. Well, that's the thing. And I mean, again, one of the things that becomes really the sort of defining sort of aspect of the series is that it, it would be absolutely wrong to read these as very much sort of class warfare narratives. And these are deep political treaties on these uh, issues. They're not, but that idea of class and class structure really sort of drives these things. And the idea of, you know, what is a dignified profession or not and it really comes to the forefront numerous times because Ichi is sort of at this weird sort of intersection where on one hand, he's a Missouri, uh, uh, and again, he is very much, uh, as we've acknowledged here, he's the lowest of the low in terms of the sort of class system that is there. At the same time, he's also a Yakuza who depending upon who you're running to on the road are either you want to join these people or they are the biggest pains and the criminal class that you cannot trust. Uh, nine times out of ten, the film sort of underscore that completely there. Uh, but at the same time, he's also this expert swordsman. And again, these things are always constantly sort of coming into conflict with him, and particularly the relationships he tries to build over the course of time, where it's like, well... Okay, can I have a romance like, well, having been a Yakuza with having all these crimes that I've technically committed and being on the run? Um, 
over the course of these films, which leads to hilarious things such as the title of Zenoichi the Outlaw, like, you know, 20, 12 films into the series when, again, he's been an outlaw since basically film one. What distinguishes this title from uh, any others in the series? Yeah. Here? But there is that sort of sense where what's interesting about Ichi is that he almost exists outside the system and uh, outside these uh, rules of society to be able to sort of poke and prod at them and point out either the hypocrisies of it or basically make choices that those who are sort of trapped by the system can't make uh, as well there or at least can't easily make again it's in its own so admittedly somewhat formulaic way it really clicks each and every time and part of that why that works as well is that tonal shift uh that we have without the series because this is one one thing you will say about the series is probably more so than most franchises or ongoing film series there is a definite playing with tone over the course of these films that you mm, yeah. don't get to see and i think that's really what helps shake it up because there's Ichi films where I would say what really shocks me is when you watch the first, I guess, maybe roughly 10, I would say approximately uh, here is that they're generally, uh, they're exciting adventure romps. They are ones that I would honestly say that if you had younger viewers uh, with you, they're not bad to necessarily watch with them. And then you hit some of the later entries and you realize, no, they are going for something much darker, much more adult, and ultimately much more nihilistic uh, as the series goes on. And this is certainly the case where, and we should probably acknowledge this here, uh, Dai may start the films, and I think they continue to act as the distributor after a certain point. But at a certain point, uh, basically, Katsu pulls an Alan Alda and takes total control uh, of the series, effectively. I like that you'd use Alan Alda as the example. <laughs> yeah, it was in the late 60s. I mean, they, Dai was having financial difficulties. When Zatoichi, the films, uh, they had Gamera, which made money, but those were expensive to make. Um, on one of the extras on the set, the uh, one of the experts make a point that the Zatoichi films were probably their biggest money earners because they were relatively cheap to make and they made a lot of money but finances were not working out at Daie so at first what yeah what uh Shintaro Katsu is able to do is he buys basically the rights of the series and so I I've got a production company now I'm going to produce these movies now you get to distribute them and then even then like even then Daie can't make its finances work and then eventually like it just goes away and then Shintaro Katsu gets to own uh, this character that he has been a part of for so many years and then he gets to take it to other distributors and so he's calling the shots one of the things yeah one of the negative things that i find about the movie and it's it's, it's a small negative thing because even the later movies are still uh often fantastic um for the earlier movies like there's uh, one thing i noticed is that uh, itchy he chuckles so often even in the face of like a bad guy will you know spit in his direction they'll call him a dog or something and he'll go <laughs> like do you want to say something else or like <laughs> like i'm gonna be on my way but the guys just keep on poking at him poking at him until he until the character finally gets mad enough that he is going to show off and uh either kill someone or you know just just you know get them to leave him alone but at a certain point once he's able to really control the series more himself a lot of that fun starts to go away and he goes darker and darker. Well, and that's the thing. I think I'm a little bit more open to the darkness uh, than you are. Because the last Daie film is Zatoichi's uh, 
Kane Sword, and then the, the next one in 1967, Zenoichi the Outlaw, marks the start of Katsu's control over. And that's the one where you really start to see that there is that big, huge tonal shift. And you're right, it is a marked departure from what we've seen beforehand. But that's kind of what I appreciate about it as well. As I admit that basically taking the series that has been mostly fun and enjoyable, and then finally really getting into seeing the different facets of what it's like to be Ichi. And the idea of, yeah, I mean, sometimes life is just hell for him. And there are no good choices, and there are no good ways to come out of this. And again, the idea that basically the world he exists in can be heavily morally compromised in ways that where there's no easy outs uh, there, I, I find fascinating. Now, had the series gone completely to that at that point, and that was what every movie was... Hello. Hello. <laughs> oh, the microphone is on. Oh dear, here I thought I turned it off. Anyway, yeah. I've got I've got a little boy here who woke up. I see. Say hi. Say hi to Dave. Hi, Dave. Hello. How are you? I've got the headphones on. There here, we you go. Put, you put your headphones on. Say hi again. Hi. Hello. How are you? Doing great. That's good. <laughs> Can't sleep. I take it. Can you go back to bed? Okay. Okay, you say good night. You're doing. You're doing okay. 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 Now, do you need to go to the wash? <laughs> no, 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 no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, do you need to go to the washroom? No. Okay. Give me a. Give me. A, be quiet. I'll do my best. Now, can you give me a hug? Okay. Here, have some water. Oh, I need that. Good night. Love ya. Bye. If you want. Hold on, putting on my headphones yep. again. Yeah, I heard as you were talking, I heard this bump up of a like, oh no. There's... I'm all for leaving this in. Um, <laughs> but... Oh, we could, I, I suppose, yeah. But yeah, so we did finish off at a good point there with, uh, so you're talking about how you like some of the darker movies. Yeah, uh, you know, as much as, let's talk about just some of them, our favorite movies really quickly then, because you already mentioned uh, Zatoichi goes to the fire festival. Do you want to tell people anything more about that one? Cause that one is, that's one of the standout films. It is. And it's such a weird film. That one's from 1970. It's late in the run. And the, the thing that struck me while watching it and the comparison I keep making or that I keep making for it, cause it just seems to be the most fitting is that, there are those shows where you get the sense where everybody involved that we're, that are making it feel that, oh, we're probably going to get canceled. Um, we need to tie everything up in, ho in a big uh, bow uh, because we're not going to be coming back. Proceed to do it, and then all of a sudden they find out they get a last-minute renewal. Um, afterwards, it's like, oh, well, geez, what are we going to do after that? And in many ways, Fire Festival uh, it feels like that because the big thing about that one is it basically... It's Ichi finally going up against, quote-unquote, the big bad. The, supposedly the real head of the Yakuza that everybody's afraid of, that everybody's involved. Yeah, that is the one I, I point out, like, that is the first time, oh, it, it's Satoichi. He's fighting a supervillain in that yeah. film. And the deal with that supervillain is also very cool. It's also, uh, to go back to Daredevil, he is very much, it's very much the idea of, uh, similar to Kingpin, where, like, no, there are a bunch of petty mob bosses what if they all reported to one major mob boss and also on top of that the deal the secret of him of what makes him powerful and also what 
his limitations are is really interesting and makes him a really good uh, adversary for Zatoichi. So that is one of the best movies. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, again, and one of the things that I, I love about that one is, and again, we haven't really commented on this, but the way in which these films are stylized and the way in which they shoot their uh, the fight scenes there. I mean, the one thing you have to give this fr- the series is that they get innovative and they get clever with what they're going to do in order to stage it. Because, again, I could easily see these things becoming these sort of routine slash slash guy goes down type uh, films if they weren't putting the time and effort into it. And time and again, they find new innovative ways to play with sword play and battles. And in this case... Uh, given everything you see with the Ichi, they actually create a pretty good uh, situation in the climax of that film to put him through the ringer uh, in a way that we hadn't seen up until that point, which is kind of why it's amazing to me that this wasn't the last <laughs> movie in the series. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, they, they, they come up with a trap for Ichi. And some of the villains have come up with traps before. Like there was one time on a bridge where they think like, oh, he hears his enemies what if we have big drums and try to drown out his ability to hear yeah. us and then they're kind of stupid and they just they just kind of give up on that idea it's like no you almost had him you you should have kept up with that yeah. idea in a uh, fire festival i'll give it away like it's right there in the title um he's going to a a fun thing a fire festival but also the bad guys figure out like what if we set up a giant trap and what if we set everything on fire and it nearly gets them. And, and it's one of the better special effects for, you know, uh, uh, 1970 or whatever year it is. And there's, you, you know, he's like the actor Katsu is probably, you know, five, six feet away from these flames, but they're shooting through a fire. And so it just looks like he's just got fire all around him and he's writhing in pain. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's just so epic in scale. And then you just, you can't sit there and think it's like, where do you go from there? And the problem is there really isn't anywhere to go from that point at that time. And instead, I think that one's followed up by Zenoichi meets the, uh, the one armed swordsman, uh, one of the two crossover films uh, of the piece. So sure, yeah, let's talk about those crossover films. One thing, and and uh, especially um, meets Yojimbo. Yeah. yeah. Um, one thing I don't care about it is that it is two hours. Yeah. It seems to drag on a bit more than it needs to. But anyway, so yeah, so everyone, and there's a bunch of uh, Akira Kurosawa snobs who will say, this is definitely not uh, uh, Yojimbo from Yojimbo and the movie Sanjuro. It is it's Toshiro Mifune. It is the real, they got the real guy. They got, so it's, it's a, it totally is. It's similar to Godzilla versus King Kong or anything else is like, Hey, we've got these two popular characters. Let's have them fight. This is going to be great. And it's a fun concept. And they got the real actor. They got uh, Mifune. He is at that point, he's done with Kurosawa. Kurosawa, um, after uh, doing the movie Redbeard, he felt that Kurosawa, Kurosawa really wasted his time, wasted uh, a year or more of his time when he could have been in other films. And so they would eventually make up, but they would never do another film together. Yeah. But you've got uh, Zatoichi and you've got uh, Toshiro Mifune and his character. And they say like they bill it as versus Yojimbo as a, like, oh, man, you know who that is? Like, like because, you know, the films, the very prestigious, similar films, Yojimbo and Sanjuro. Um a lot of sen- uh, a lot of Kurosawa fans will say that is definitely not the same character. And I mean, a legally, it is not the same character. But also, 
you know, you can make a case either way. I'm a bit more loose on that idea on whether this has to be the same character or not. He's fallen on harder times. Part of the problem I find with uh, the Yojimbo crossover movie is Mifune is playing great. But rather than the point, the point of in the two in Yojimbo and Sanjuro, what's great about those movies is how conniving yeah. his character is. Yeah, like, like because he is like like Zatoichi, he is one of the best sword fighters. But his real deal is, is like, what if I act as lazy as possible? And if I look like I'm taking money from these bad guys here and I'll have the two bad guys kill each other. Like, I mean, there's that great scene that uh, a fistful of dollars even copies where he has got the two gangs on either side of town and he goes up a tower and says like no you guys kill each other i'm i'm out of this fight these these guys pissed me off what happens in uh zatoichi meets yojimbo is that he's a drunkard he's always asking for money which sort of miss which even right there it kind of misses the point of in yojimbo he's always asking money to make the bad guys think that he's money grubbing when in fact he's very willing to give up the money if it's part of his plan so that he can get them killed. But here it's really, he's just money grubbing and drunk. And what it really is, it's more of a copy of the plot of Yojimbo. That's sort of my problem with that movie because there are two rival gangs again and Zatoichi and uh, the Yojimbo character should be on either side and they should be trying to figure out how to play the gangs off one another and to be conniving themselves. Instead, it's just trying to copy a lot of the beats of Yojimbo and not doing a good enough job of it. Well, and I think part of it, I mean, there's a couple things there where it's one of the things, and this might sound like a slight against the Zatoichi films, and it really isn't meant to be, but the plotting of the Ichi movies is very straightforward for the most part. They're not typically overly complicated stories. Uh, whereas Yojimbo, yeah, because it is built along, uh, more along the lines of those conni- of the conniving that, again, there is a bit more complexity, at least in terms of the mechanics, if not necessarily in terms of theme. And in the case of this is like not only are we deprived of getting to see those two different sort of ideas clashing with one another in the case of these films there's not really a lot of time between Mifune and Katsu on screen either because again half the fun of something like that is getting to see your two stars play off of one another and presumably to see the fun in that and instead Mifune's character is so somber in this movie that there isn't really an opportunity to have any sort of fun banter or interplay with Katsu where you get to sort of see them playing off of one another and playing to their strengths. And that's a shame because I mean, this is your big crossover event here. You'd think that they would, you know, really want to deliver on that for the audiences who enjoy both these characters. And instead it's a very somber Zatoichi movie guest starring Toshiro Mifune as in scare quotes, Yojimbo, who may or may not be the character there, just please don't sue us. Yeah, the the great the, the, that's the one great thing about like you can't presumably I'm guessing like in Japan you can't trademark the name Yojimbo. You can't trademark bo- the word bodyguard, and that's why they got away with it. If they had named the character, then they could have gotten into trouble. And like and 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 uh, fans will point out like, well, he gets a name in this movie. Yeah, but also he does things like he he jokes about how. Um, like Sanjuro, Sanjuro, uh, who am I? Like, like I'm a 30 year old guy, but I'm almost 40. And in this one, uh, he jokes at one point, he says like, like, well, what's your name? And before he gives his real name, he says like, well, I'm a 40 year old guy, but I'm almost 50. 
so so you know it's supposed to be the same joke yeah Yeah, exactly so i mean the it's kind of a wash on that one so it's kind of weird then to think that arguably the more successful crossover is the one with the one-armed swordsman which is not just a crossover uh in terms of two popular characters meeting one another but this is also two different production entities and two different countries uh meeting up in this instance as well uh so maybe you could probably speak more to the one-armed swordsman in in its overall history than i can in this instance ross oh well just just uh briefly yeah so well i mean i'm I'm impressed that they did these crossovers first off with uh toshiro mifune and then they do one-armed swordsman the one-armed swordsman um that is played by uh hong kong actor jimmy wang yu and uh jimmy wang yu um there he's got his uh, first introductory movie um, by Shaw Brothers. He does a sequel, and uh, then they do this. Uh, I won't get into everything about Jimmy Wang Yu. Partly, what uh, he was a uh, pal of Bruce Lee. Both of them had been working with Shaw Brothers. Golden Harvest starts up, and uh, they had been asking Shaw Brothers for uh, raises and maybe for cuts of the movies. And Shaw Brothers said, "No, we're not going to treat you any better." And they and Bruce Lee and uh, Jimmy Wang Yu and I'm guessing other actors said, "Well, fine, we can go to other companies now. We can work with Golden Harvest now." But also, Jimmy Wang Yu goes to like, "Oh, I can work with, uh, uh, I can work uh, over in Japan for this one movie." But this was, I think, this was actually this was his last uh, hurrah with Shaw Brothers and what was officially that original uh, one-armed swordsman character. So yes, he's just, uh, he's uh, an excellent fighter, like Satoichi. Uh, He fights with a short sword. Um, In the first movie, he is maimed. He's just, he's an actor with two arms, but he just uh, has one arm uh, tucked into his uh, shirt for the movies. And so, and so, yeah, it also, it, it, it's, it's pretty good because it's these two disabled characters and they're going to go fight. And so here, all it is, is that, uh, uh, the one-armed swordsman, he's got a friend, a monk that's in Japan. He decides, I'm going to leave my home country of China and go over to uh, Japan over here. And part of, like, they, they do, honestly, you know, some good stuff, such as uh, Jimmy Wang Yu's character. Like, he speaks, uh, I think, actually, speaking Mandarin. I, I, <laughs> I need to go back and look again. I, forget, I forgot already if he spoke uh, Mandarin or Cantonese in it. But... He's speaking Chinese, and uh, Zatoichi cannot understand him. Every once in a while, they uh, have a friend who can be an intermediary and can translate for them. And uh, things come to a head. They have this whole adventure together. They're both fighting bad guys. Um, Midway through the movie, there's a misunderstanding. Zatoichi has to go leave to get some water and food and provisions because he's trying to help out the one-armed swordsman. Um, the one-armed swordsman does not understand this. And the very next scene, the bad guys are after him. And someone even points out to him like, oh, Zatoichi, like he's money grubbing. He's Yakuza. Like he's he's a bad guy. He'll do anything for money. And so the one-armed swordsman makes the incorrect assumption that what who had been his pal Zatoichi now like turned him over for money which leads to they're going to have a fight at the end because they cannot communicate in the same language and say like, no, no, I did not betray you. And so they have a fight at the end. Yeah. And the way this fight ends, I mean, this is one of those things where I I am honestly, it makes perfect sense because I assume that this was basically a a way to appease uh, the masters in control of the uh, purse strings in both instances uh, for, for this film here. But yeah, there are two apparently different endings 
to this movie. Now, there's only one in the Criterion set uh, there, which is a shame, because I would love to see what the version that played in Hong Kong was, or in uh, China was. But, yeah, they do something I wasn't anticipating in terms of uh, how they end this movie. I won't say what it is, but it's... It's well, no, we might as yeah. well we might as well spoil Fair. that because yeah. yeah, but like it it is an interesting thing, and like if any people like speaking of Japanese cinema, people might know the legend of uh, Godzilla versus King Kong. Supposedly, for years and years, people thought, oh, Japan had a version of the movie where Godzilla won the fight, and other countries, and there was another version where K- King Kong won the fight, and they're pretty sure today, like, no, that is an incorrect uh, fact. That is not true. That the f- the film just ends the way it ends. But for a lot of time, people thought that, like, depending on your country, oh, that there was an ending where one hero or the other hero, I mean, monster hero, won. And so when I first read this about um, uh, Zatoichi meets the one-armed swordsman, I thought, like, that sounds exactly the same, that in one version that uh, Ichi wins and has is forced to kill his rival, and in the other film shown in Hong Kong and places, that, yeah, that uh, Jimmy Wang Yu kills and he is the winner of that fight. And so I thought, like, so maybe this is fake as well. I don't know. But then you actually watch it and, like, it's edited in such... I'm not going to say awkward, but like they are close. They are up against each other. They're 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 coming at each other. And then suddenly it just cuts to a wider shot. And it's very apparent. Like, no, like, like you can totally believe it. Like, like, oh, like now the one arm swordsman is down on the ground. You could totally see they could have, they could have filmed it and edited it in such a way that, that no, this could be true, that there could be a version where the one-armed swordsman wins and is forced to kill Itchy. Well, absolutely, but even even the fact that they, they, they structured around the idea that one of these guys was going to die one way or the other is such a weird concept to me, because you would think the Shaw brothers would look at this as like, okay, we we're, want to presumably keep making one-armed swordsman films uh, in the future, putting aside the legal difficulties that were obviously, and uh, contractual difficulties that would prevent that. Um... Presumably, Katsu keeps wanting to make more Ichi films. It just seems such a weird thing to set it up where it's like, you know, wouldn't it make more sense to build a film where they ultimately team up and then go their separate ways? It's like, well, you do your awesome thing, I go do my awesome thing, and, you know, we'll never speak of this yeah, but again. I kinda, <laughs> yeah, but I kind of love that uh, there there is um, a wilder sense to series back in the day. Like, today, like, because you and I, we sort of see movie series as... You know, even James Bond, even James Bond has now solidified as more as a here is what the James Bond series is. But like also Marvel and that each movie matters and that you have to like there, there can be jokes, but like the consequences have to be real and they have to span across this series where we're going to sell toys and all this stuff. But like back in the day, I love that concept of just like, no, you could just die in this movie because like, like we'll. That's just an interesting thing to do. Why not do that? Not to mention the fact that I think that um, Jimmy Wang Yu, he had voiced, by this point, he had voiced that he was uh, unhappy with Shaw Brothers. Because, like, I I think that's his last, uh, uh, sort of continuing the story that I had started with the actor before, that uh, I think this, his, his, this is his last movie with the Shaw Brothers at all. And then he goes to Taiwan... But he's so popular as that character that he starts up a totally new series called The One-Armed Boxer. <laughs> See, like, like, but I love that. It's like, you know, again, like, like James Bond kind of stuff. Like, what if Sean Connery, like, like, yeah, I'm going to play James Bond for a while. Like, oh, I am done with the broccolis now. Like, well, you know, like, like, 
if if a better film company comes along and wants me as an action star, I can play a similar character. And like that's totally what it is. It's just shaving off the edges of what these proper, you know, I'm using air quotes like properties yeah. are and and you, you can go off and you know that I'm kind of playing the same character, but like but legally I'm not playing the same character. And so I can totally see like I don't care if you kill me off. Go for it. Yeah. <laughs> and I find, I I find choices like that a lot more interesting oh i absolutely agree don't get me wrong i'm not saying it isn't interesting it's just I, it, it blows my mind when you from the perspective of uh corporate greed you would <laughs> getting in the way it's like that's yeah. the sort of thing where it's like you would assume somebody you know in the uh or in the uh, accounting department might have had put up a hand there and said maybe this isn't the direction we want to go with this but yeah I, I think it is ultimately the more successful of the two crossover films it still has the same problem of being way over long um yeah <laughs> uh, they're like they are the longest films in these series are these crossover films and i kind of get that it probably a lot of it was well we need to balance the running time between our two leads uh, in this instance, but yeah, it definitely, definitely doesn't benefit, uh, the films overall. I'd say probably the last uh, of the ones I really want to highlight is Zetoichi and the Chest Expert, only because as trope-laden as these films are, that's the one that gets really, it, it sort of breaks away, uh, from the sort of... Yeah, you're right. The, yeah, the st standard structure of it, because it really is a case where it's less... Ichi gets involved in stopping the, you know, corrupt government officials or the Yakuza bosses this time. And it's more just this very weird relationship he has with a chest expert. Somebody who basically is another one of these rival characters. But Ichi has a much more complicated relationship with him over the course of the film. And it's a much more sinister one than we're sort of used to uh, in these films as well, where... Yeah, again, there is a real sense of danger for Ichi in these instances. And they do play up little things like that's the one film where Ichi is an amazing dice player, uh, as we've acknowledged here. And he's losing throughout the, that film. Like, it's the. Right, yeah. yeah and it, and again, it's just those weird little touches that I absolutely love about them, where it's like, this is the odd one out in the franchise and makes it far more of a unique experience compared to the rest of it around it. Uh, but what about you, Russ? What are your particular favorite entries into this series? Thank you. I'll pick out a few. But you know what's also fun about uh, each uh, Zatoichi meets the chess expert? Because a lot of these films, um, they were retitled for Western audiences. Yeah. So sometimes some of them, like uh, uh, Zatoichi and the, and the chess expert, does not match up with its Japanese title. Do you know what the Japanese title of that uh, one is? Is it not Zatoichi in Hell? Uh, yeah. yeah, it's Zatoichi <laughs> on the Road to Hell, which, like, even, I've even read like people sort of make fun of it as, like, that's a good film. They say, like, he spends half the time at a spa, actually. <laughs> like, they, they, they spend some time at a spa. Like, like, like we don't know why. Like, sometimes, like, like it's a cool-sounding name. So, like, sometimes it's just cool sounding names or like hence like uh zatoichi uh the fugitive is like we well, had to use that title sometime like it, it, it doesn't really matter but i love that like zatoichi on the road to hell like whoa this sounds like one of the best ones I'm like oh it's a very good one like but like no actually the western title the english title actually makes more sense it's like no it's him against a sometimes cerebral villain who you know is very good at uh the japanese what they're calling chess it's it's the the game go yeah yeah so i'll pick out a few of my favorites um first off again like if anyone wants to start out in this movie series there is no reason not to start out from the beginning 
Uh, definitely, like I said, the first four movies uh, have a nice thread and uh, briefly touch on his backstory. He goes back to his hometown in the third movie, which was uh, well, speaking of which the continuity or rather the the facts about Zatoichi remain kind of standard throughout all the movies, by which I mean they don't make mistakes. They don't suddenly say, oh, actually this, uh, they, they don't make mistakes on what his backstory is, except for just a few details such as his hometown. In three movies, he goes back to his hometown and each time the circumstances change a little yeah. bit. And so they're not, they're not, they're a little bit confused on that. They're also a little bit confused at times on the history of the sword he uses. And again, uh, speaking of which, uh, uh, Zatoichi's Kane sword, which is the film where he gets a new sword. That is, that is a very good movie. There's not much for me to say about that other than it's clever how it ends. And there's a swordsmith who says, who's, I think he's a drunkard too. He's definitely poor, but, but he never got a chance to build a great sword. And so he finally meets Satoichi. He says like, you're worthy of my skills. I'm going to make a new sword for you. And then he does. And it's just a very good standard movie. Um, the first four movies I like. Uh, my favorite is one of the most lighthearted ones, which is a ridiculous thing to say because it starts at what sounds like a very dark place. My favorite movie, and I've read around... It is some other people's favorite Zatoichi movie as well. It is uh, Fight Zatoichi ah, Fight. Yes. And it, what you might also just call it, it, it's the one with a baby. Yeah. Now, I know the standard uh, uh, thing you hear about movies is like, we don't want movies with children or babies. But no, like the baby is a cute baby, but is otherwise a prop. And it just tugs at your heartstrings that... Uh, the reason that I said that it's so lighthearted because there's comedy with the baby and stuff. And he's taking, and he's showing his paternal side, taking care of this little child as he goes along. And it's difficult because he's got to fight bad guys and he's got to like strap this baby onto him. It's a lot of fun. Like he's got to take care of this baby. The way that it starts is that a mother dies. Like it, it starts at a very dark place, but like, sad to say like the, the the character she she barely matters because she show she shows up to die and then his job for the movie is i've got to get this baby to its dad and it's just a lot of fun um also shows again like like uh itchy has a soft side where a woman a low-class woman she's a thief she basically becomes you know, a pseudo uh, wife to him and mother to this baby. And like, could we become a family unit? And he finally gets to the dad. Uh, I might as well uh, spoil that point. Uh, the dad is one of the bad guys. He is an evil man. He doesn't want his own child, which Itchy's like, fine, I'm going to either take care of this baby or get it to someplace safe. But now the, the evil dad wants to kill Zatoichi and doesn't care what happens to his own son just a really there there are evil guys in this movie but uh, what i love is close to the ending is he gets to a monastery honestly to basically um bury some remains of the mother who died at the start of the film and he's with a monk and uh this monk he, he says like i'm gonna take care of this baby you know like, like like i love this child i want to take care of him i've been taking care of him for days now weeks now and the monk goes do you think you can do that you're blind and I'm not even trying to insult you, but like a, you're blind, but like more importantly, like you're Yakuza and you're killing and people are out to kill you all the time. Like you're not fit to do this. You got to leave them with me. 
I'll raise the child. He can decide when he's older if he wants to be a monk or not. And it's really, it's really heart wrenching that let here Itchy thinks that like I've got a chance to be a dad is like, no, you're right. And then he has to go out and then he and then he's gotta have his fight with the guys who don't care about this baby is like, you jerks. So yeah. Fight Zatoichi fight, it's the one with the baby. I I think it's it's got a lot of comedy it's very fun it's very cute at points but also like it's got these very tender moments where and that's kind of the main point in the endings of a lot of these movies is can i have a wife can i settle down and lead a more normal life no i'm this kind of here well i mean he doesn't think of himself as a hero but like i'm this kind of adventurer i gotta go on and like i'm gonna probably kill people on my way so it kind of gets to the whole point of Zatoichi. So yeah, so I think Fight Zatoichi Fight is my recommendation for my favorite one. On the flip side, not my favorite one. In fact, uh, getting back to being mean, this is the meanest film in the in the series. Uh, Zatoichi in Desperation. Ah, yes. Oof. That one, um, and okay, this is the second to last film he does in the 70s. So he's so they know they're closing up shop. They're going to end the film series. Yeah, uh, I think they probably figure out then that they're going to move on to TV, which we can talk in a moment. But so they're, they're ending the series pretty soon here. And he gets a chance to direct. And all his darker tendencies come out. It is not a fun film. And you think like, well, they're not going to get all these innocent people killed in this film in horrible ways, are they? Like, oh no, they are. That 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 in other movies like I and I I just said, oh, a mom died and like but yeah, but like she was kind of a non-character and that's just a springboard for the rest of the film and of course the baby's going to be fine and like ultimately in a lot of these films an old-fashioned western hero or a samurai or something, he saves most of the people. He's going to save most of the day. Zatoichi in Desperation is very interesting because for one thing, first off, like there's a whole theme to it. Like you can tell more than the other directors, Shintaro Katsu now maybe having played a blind man for 12 years, he has thought about what it means to be blind. That movie opens with, he meets an old woman on a rickety old bridge and you see them and like, they have to sort of get around with one another. And Ichi is being, polite and nice in his own in his own way and then suddenly it's really interesting because there's an editing cut like suddenly like the one moment they're talking to together together and the next moment she's hanging onto the bridge and like you're like whoa is that a mistake like why is she's in danger now what happened but you realize no that's what it would sort of be like being zatoichi that despite his great senses he is he is blind. He is not always aware of things that are happening around him. And a woman falls to her death. In their brief interaction, um, he did get some information on where this old woman's daughter lives, a town. And he does his, this is how a lot of the movies go, like with the baby, how he has to deliver the baby to its, he's trying to his father. Here, I'm going to go to this woman's daughter, adult daughter, and tell, inform her that her mother has died. Uh, this editing that, yeah, that, that at one moment she's fine and the next she's hanging on for her life. And so interesting things like that happen where you see that Zatoichi, he's not always totally aware of everything that's around him. He needs something. He needs a sound. He needs something to indicate to him what he needs to do next. And that is the theme of that movie. And he goes and 
he discovers that this adult woman, that uh, she is working at a bordello, that she is a sex worker. A thing that he has done time and again where he has either saved uh, sex workers or he has saved women from that fate. So he thinks he's going to do this same sort of thing. Like he meets this woman. He is kind of, uh, I'm not, he's not even trying to romance her, but he is being his normal sort of charming, um, uh, amicable self. You know, this is sort of the thing I do. I'm going to gamble, earn some money. I'm going to free you from working in this place. It's very interesting. At the same time, there is like a 13 or 14 year old girl and uh, she works in the kitchen. It is made very clear in the movie that uh, when she gets a little bit older, she will be forced into sex work, same as the other women. And is a really awful thing. And you think through the movie, he is trying to help this woman who he doesn't really know. And he does. He gets a lot of money together and pays for her freedom. And she is kind of nice to him but like you can tell something is kind of off that she she doesn't really care about him and she even points out to Zatoichi like you think you know who I am you are blind like you don't know who I am you I did I did not ask you to save me to the point where she's not she's not villainous but uh she is willing to kind of work with the bad guys like like she at one point she does something that might help get Zatoichi killed uh, meanwhile, you're waiting for her like he's Satoichi has to save this younger girl, this innocent girl. Like, like that's the thing he always does. That's what he does in every movie. And there are moments where they walk by each other because he is a blind man. He doesn't know what her plight is. He doesn't know. And that this young girl has a younger brother that she would really love to be free with. I guess I'll give away the movie since I've been talking about this so much. Like, so the theme of the movie is Satoichi is blind throughout all these movies he has done amazing things he's killed the right bad guys and ultimately he will kill bad guys in this movie as well too but like he doesn't save them he like he doesn't save that girl she is not pressed into sex work instead her younger brother dies and then she is going to go off and commit suicide and like that is the thing it's it's ships passing zatoichi this hero who you've always thought like like he's he's got to save the day and this one, yeah, he gets rid of the bad guys when it's too late. He isn't, he doesn't know about the plight of this young girl or her brother. And that's sort of like, that's the the darkness of this movie. But it's really, it's it's a very compelling film that obviously uh, Shintaro Katsu has thought an awful lot about. Also, he he gets uh, his hands mangled in this film, and you wonder like, like yeah. the bad guys. Oh, it's 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 some of the worst stuff. Like they're 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 um, stabbing at prosthetics at at just fake arms. But like like ha, they give him a knife. They say like we're gonna kill you tomorrow. You can't hold your sword anymore. And what does he do? And then he still finds a way. Like you say, like how's he gonna get out of this one? Oh no, now the people he should have saved died. How's he gonna get out of this one? Should I give it away? I might as well because yeah, I've been talking about this well. enough. Yeah. yeah, like like the the resolution. Like I didn't really see it coming, but it is it's low key ingenious what he does. He tied his sword to his hand. That's all he did. Like with his teeth, he and he's all bloody and messed up. Like like but no, like of course that's what he does. He's doing the same thing he always does. He is extra pissed off. This is an extra angry, mean movie. I'm gonna kill all of you. Like like you mangled up my hands. And then he kills the guys again. And, and it, 
do not start with that movie. That is uh, Zatoichi in Desperation. <laughs> it's one of the last movies. It does show like uh, Shintaro Katsu, he could be a very um, compelling, uh, maybe not a perfect director, but a very compelling, very interesting director. And the main thing I'm very impressed with him in that film is that like, yeah, like in all the other films, they've thought about situations about like, well, how would a blind man operate and save the day? How would, how would they, uh, get rid of the bad guys or perform this trick or something? But no, that that's the theme of this movie for probably the first time where like, like Zatoichi, he, uh, has the skills to do amazing things. But if Zatoichi, if he's not knowledgeable about the whole situation, if he doesn't get the sound, if he doesn't get the indication of what he needs to do, he can't save everybody. And that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And the sad part is, is I kind of wish that uh, Katsu had actually put as much thought into the, his second directorial effort and the final film in the Zatoichi series. Uh, Zatoichi from 1989, a.k.a. Zatoichi Darkness is his ally. Uh, that year, everyone had a choice. The they had a choice of Batman. Actually, they also had a choice of The Last Crusade. And they had Ghostbusters 2. Or you can see yeah. the last Zatoichi movie. Yeah. <laughs> and here's the thing. It's not the worst film. In the no, series. it's not. I would honestly. Yeah, I would say honestly, like the weakest one for me. And it's not that it's again. I don't think there's any bad film in the series. No, I would say that the we weakest one is Zatoichi's conspiracy. The last film in the 70s. Yeah, that extent. Yeah, because it's a it's just, it, it feels more perfunctory. It's like the one where the, you feel like they're out of gas and don't really know what to do with it. Darkness is his ally by contrast. This is uh, Katsu coming back to the character after an extended hiatus, after quite a bit of time, and being substantially older. Like, I mean, he ages really well throughout the first 25 films. He is noticeably older by the time you get to this one. Really and briefly, just before we'll get back to it very quickly, but yeah, so the, he does yeah. the whole series for around 12 years, Die Films is gone. Um, the movies, I don't think they're performing as well. They know they need to close up. Uh, he gets the opportunity to move over to television. And I watched around six episodes of the TV show. This is the, this, and this is the funniest thing. Like you and I, we spent a whole year watching these films. We actually only watched like a third of of his entire Zatoichi content acting because he did uh, twice as much for television and he did it from uh, 74, 75 to like 79. So he does it in the later half of the seventies when he's doing too much drugs and, and he's, and he's got total control over the series. Yeah. So, and he does that. They're a little, they're not as mean as that movie I was just describing, but they're a little bit meaner. Um, it's very much, um, the Fugitive or the Incredible Hulk TV show where actually maybe partly because he's directing more now. Um, Zatoichi is sometimes a background character where like, here's a town, here's some people, they've got problems with bad guys again. And Zatoichi kind of comes in towards the end and kills who needs to be killed. And then he's off on his way again. So he he's done uh, 12 years of the movies. He does another five years of the TV show. And then uh, he's done for basically the 1980s until I don't know really what compelled him to come back other than, you know, this is my character. I want to get back to him. Yeah. And he goes in for uh, this is the 1989 movie. First thing, it's too long again. It's it's two hours. It is otherwise, it's an okay Zatoichi movie. I did notice like the humor is as as was his tendency when he had control over the series. 
he he makes it less fun. There's no chuckling. There's no Zatoichi being amused at his own um, problems in the world. It's it's another Zatoichi adventure, and that's probably the biggest problem with it is that you want him to either wrap things up or to have something important to say about this character that he's been with for like actually over over 20 years now like he he's been with for a long time and you want something poignant you basically you basically want if if he's similar to a western hero you want something like uh unforgiven right you want like like yeah. unforgiven like it's sort of like that's the capper on clint eastwood's western heroes you want uh, Shintaro Katsu to say like this is what the character means to me or like this is something about his mortality and instead what it becomes is hey remember Satoichi here's another adventure and he's older and and they sort of point that out that he's older and maybe he hasn't still got it but no he's got it when he's when it counts and he could just kill the bad guys again and like it's just instead of being more like the last Zatoichi adventure it's just kind of another one well I would say it's even worse than that in the sense that like, this is this is the vanity project for Katsu, or this is the film where it's not just, you know, Zatoichi still got it. This is Katsu basically trying, no, no, I've still got it. I'm, you know, well, with one scene capable in particular, absolutely. Man. Well, and that's exactly it. Like, you get this, it really is his vanity on display where he's trying to sell himself back as, you know, the sort of virile macho character. And yeah, the sex angle is definitely amped up in this film uh, substantially to a ridiculous degree. But what makes it. I mean, it's also a film that's sort of marred in tragedy, because number one, Katsu's working with a son on this film as well. And if I'm remembering cor correctly, it's a son is effectively playing one of the lead villains. That's an interesting uh, aspect it, in and of itself, because, yeah, because his son uh, plays the lead, the new, there is a little bit of, like, the old generation versus the new, and here's a new, mean Yakuza boss who is played by his son. And it's interesting in and of itself that at the end of the movie, like, because this is the bad guy, he kills his son. I mean, like, like just yeah. the, the character of his son. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll tell the accident. Yeah. That his son was holding what he thought was more of a prop sword, but uh, it was sharp enough. And he killed another actor on set. The son did. Which is really terrible. It also, it also sort of speaks to maybe um, Shintaro Katsu's... Um, I mean, a director should be, you know, ultimately kind of in charge of his own set. So, like, like how with it, how uh, sober was Katsu while filming all this? And his son accidentally killed, I think, just an, a, another stunt, uh, a stunt person on the set. I don't know. Unfortunately, it's not like, um, it's not like other tragedies on films like The Crow or something. Like, I, I can't point out what the scene is where this person died, but that is sort of the thing that is probably of greater importance about that movie. Yeah. Well, it's the thing. And I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the, both of those elements, like the tragedy of it. I mean, it, particularly watching that documentary on Katsu in, uh, in the late seventies when he's shooting the show and he's clearly high as a kite more often than not. And you see those scenes where he's with his family. And I don't know if any of the children that are with him there would ultimately, would be the one who would end up acting in that film with him. But you, it, it is just so sad to see because you get the sense as you're looking at the kids that they are used to their father being in this inebriated state yeah. that they're sort of left with him in. And like, that's such an odd relationship to have because Katsu's clearly off in his own world 
is completely alienated. And again, based on everything we're shown as well, it seems that he spends practically no time with his family. Uh, again, in the case of his wife, based on everything we've heard, it's kind of understandable why she would probably wouldn't want to be near him all that much. But you would think at least, okay, these are your kids. You might want to put a little more effort into this here. But then you look at yeah, the whole weird meta-textual element of, yeah, killing his son, which is impossible to not read into. Like, there's no way you cast that. Uh, it is strange. Well, expect- well you, say, you say that, like, I don't know if it was he was trying to turn his son into a star. And his son his son, um, largely quit acting after this. I have, I, talking about reading into things, I have to read that into that he killed someone on set that he didn't want or was not going to follow in his father's footsteps and become, you know, any sort of celebrity or actor. So he did very little acting after that. I have to, I have to wonder if, Hey son, I'm going to put you in the arguably the second most important role in this movie. So if you're the villain, that means that I kill you. Like that's just how these things work. I, I have to wonder if it was, you say read into it, which is one way to definitely do it. I have to wonder if it was just the mechanics of I'm going to make you the bad guy, give you an important role in this film. That means that I slice you at the end. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's weird because, I mean, certainly it's he's not the first filmmaker to start casting their kids in films like this. And it certainly isn't as complicated as, watch, say, talking about things like Dario Argento and his daughter uh, Asia Argento and the very peculiar working relationship they have had over the years. Uh, I'll, I'll leave that there for another time. But I, I think it, it is one of these cases where it, it could be a case where just nobody else was willing to take the role and he was available. And Kat's like, well, your family will work cheap. You do it. Um, or it may even, again, just looking at how, from everything we can tell, Katsu was not necessarily all that with it and not willing necessarily to throw in the towel, whether this is almost even subconsciously just a basically trying to reassert that no no i still have it in some way here i am you know take this to my children i you know they can't replace me yeah. uh yes this is dave's you know foolish psychoanalyzing of a man who's been long dead at yeah. this point speaking, um, speaking so, of his vanity uh, like just to go back to that really quick like there is a gratuitous <laughs> sex scene which you know like, like he had yeah. romances in back in the 60s and 70s as well which fair enough but what's extra funny is like yeah there is like a 20 maybe 30 year age difference between him and the woman that uh, he's having uh, sex with on screen. And it's long and extended and trying to be romantic. It's switch, which is also funny. Like there's no reason for there. There is no reason because he doesn't save her or anything. There's they don't have chemistry leading up to that. It's more just, I am totally enamored with you. You are the hero Zatoichi. Let, let's <laughs> let's have this sex scene. So it is. It's yeah. very like that is definitely yeah uh, shows his vanity right there. Uh, uh, a little fact for everyone out there. Um, oh, I forget. I forget everyone's names. But so you might be familiar. There is a video game series in uh, North America. We call it Earthbound. In Japan, it's called the Mother series. Uh, it's created by uh, a man named Itoi, and it's he's a celebrity in Japan, but like in the West, we can't really understand why because he's just sort of a writer, but he's not a novelist. He just so so it's it, it's interesting to us like trying to understand what kind of celebrity he is. But his wife, his wife uh, Kanako Higuchi, she plays the woman in that film. 
So like this is the so just for any video game players out there, like in this Zatoichi movie, the last uh, uh, Shintaro Katsu movie, yeah, the love interest is uh, Itoi's wife. I don't know. I, I find that very interesting. Like, oh yeah, because like I think a lot of people are familiar with that she is an actress. But a lot of the times we're not familiar with the movies she's been in. That is one of her movies that she she plays in this last Satoichi film. And I'm sure she was really thrilled having to be on the set that day. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I mean, but yeah, it's it's kind of a downer of a way to end the original series. Uh, well, it's not, comparatively. But, yeah. Well, it's not. Oh, well, sorry. Yeah. Just it's not even a downer in that it's not as depressing as um, Satoichi in Desperation. It doesn't say anything grand about it. like you say like probably what it says most about is shintaro katsu's vanity over himself and what you know that i can still play this character which hey fair enough he can some people call it a bad movie i i don't think it's a bad movie it's just like you say like oh here's it's another one i wish that it had something meaningful to say about the character and it just doesn't not beyond any of the other movies anyway well, no, absolutely not. And it's a shame that it would end on that note. But, I mean, I guess this does... I mean, do we want to cover very quickly the three non-Katsu films? Or should we no, leave No, absolutely. Hey, more? let's do it really quickly. So anyway, so everyone... So if we're yeah. making any recommendation, I would definitely say... Probably, I, I would recommend go to the library unless you have the Criterion channel. In which case, go um, check out these movies them yourself. Definitely start from the beginning. Um, Zatoichi, what you and I, Dave, what we're probably sure about is that it was based on a short story. Um, the author, yeah. by the way, he got to see, I don't know, um, a good chunk of the original, uh, movies in the sixties. I think he passed away in the late sixties. So he got to see this character at its height. He probably pro I'm assuming he profited off of it. So that is very nice that he wrote this very, and it's a very short story. You can read it in, um, um, like 15 minutes or less. There was a short story. Um, we are pretty sure that that short story is now in the public domain. So that mo the movie series, and if you wanted to do a sequel and said like, hey, I'm going to fight the chess expert again, you would have to find uh, Shintaro Katsu's estate and, you know, have to pay money to do a sequel on that. I'm fairly sure, however, that uh, that short story is in the public domain. So anyone, not just Japan, anyone can just make their own... Uh, Zatoichi movie, which is, I think, what has happened. So in 2003, this is a, a movie that is actually more interesting than the 1989 film. This is by Beat yeah. Takeshi, who is very famous to a lot of people, including a lot of Westerners, but I have not seen any of his other films, so I have uh, very little familiarity with him. But he does his own film that's just called Zatoichi in 2003. First thing to know, uh, down because we can do this quickly, Downside... Um, it's got CGI blood from 2003 and that looks, and yeah. that is, uh, stands out. It's, it's pretty awkward. That stuff is not very good. His acting is fine. The story is fine. It's also, it's another two hour long movie so that I don't appreciate that. I would say to me, honestly, and, and I know you and I slightly disagree with on this one because, uh, this was actually my introduction to the Zatoichi series originally. Okay. Uh, I, I'll, I'll save you the long story because there was a sort of humorous uh, tale to go with this one. But, uh, the, the key thing here for me, this is that, uh, uh Takashi Kitano is a very 
he is an idiosyncratic filmmaker, uh, and very much this Zatoichi is his Zatoichi, and it's very much a response in some ways, or at least a consideration of the Katsu films there. Like, you get the sense that he sort of watched these things, internalized them, really thought about them, and came at it from a very different perspective uh, for his interpretation. And to me, it might actually be my favorite film out of anything in the Zatoichi canon, while acknowledging that it's its own beast completely that, compared to uh, the other ones. That is very wow. interesting because um, I I think that is a good film. Um, I think uh, Beat Takeshi, I think he did a good job acting and directing. Yeah, like, meanwhile, it is not my favorite film. So I find that interesting. But yeah, w w you are absolutely right. It is about Zatoichi and whether or not he um, paid... Uh, for the rights of the previous film series, definitely uh, that that's the handy thing about these is because so many elements were in that short story, including you know the the gambling, the drinking, uh, the love interest that he used to have that are in the first four movies, Otane. So basically, there there's pretty much nothing that you need to pay to use from the Shintaro Katsu movies. But here, whether he did that or not, he saw those movies. I'm guessing as a younger man. And so this is a movie where he's sort of thinking about the previous series. Uh, what am I driving at? I won't give away secrets, but like there are twists in that movie. So I find that very interesting. Yeah. yeah I wish that to me, if it had been tightened up more for, for me, that's what I want. But if it had been tightened up more like, like this beat and this beat and um, the ending, I find interesting. I, I find more interesting maybe on an intellectual level because it recontextualizes this hero you've seen over 26 movies so far. So I find that interesting, but like, yeah, for me, that is not my favorite movie, but that's, I, I can definitely see it being yours. Yeah. Yeah. Um, less than, on the other hand, uh, are the next two and thus far final films, uh, to be associated with the Ichi character. So there is the film Ichi, which is more of a spinoff or basically, Using this character to uh, to launch a separate character, which in itself seems to be launching a pop star's acting well, career. That, yeah, uh, well, that is the thing about... So these final two films, there is... You've got Ichi and you've got Zatoichi the Last. And in both of those films, they star actors. They are both fine actors. I've got nothing against them. They give them rather weak material. The movies are too long again. They are J-pop stars who are pivoting to acting careers. And you can definitely see uh, some manager telling them, oh, hey, here's Zatoichi. That's kind of the perfect level of character for you because uh, it's a serious enough role with enough gravitas and like it's enough, it's got enough um, name recognition. So we're going to plug you into this movie. You get into it, you get out, you're not going to uh, spend a career with this character. And that's what those movies really are. So yeah, so Itchy, it's a uh, woman uh, starring. She is supposed to be the protege of Zatoichi. And she's on her way. She's looking for her uh, former teacher. She is also blind. That one, that one is especially disappointing. You you noticed it too, because she develops a love interest in the movie, which that's fine. That's sort of uh, standard stuff. But the love interest ends up saying like, like, oh, here's this man. He's a better fighter than the blind uh, swordswoman Itchy. Yeah. It's, it's really weird. She's not around for the final big fight. She is, she has to recover and then she gets, and, and yeah, she does. She fights the final bad guy after he's already been wounded, and it's kind of a lame duck of a movie. It is not 
particularly interesting. Also, you can totally tell like, oh no, this is for her career. It is not the like the 2003 uh, Takeshi film where it's a commentary about this character and it doesn't do anything particularly interesting. Well, what, the real shame of it is is that there at least was room to develop the idea of, okay, what is it like to be a blind woman working her way through the same period of time, uh, approximately, and what would the, how would that experience is different from a male character? And there is a movie to be made there. Uh, this is not that movie. Unfortunately, there's only lip service paid to that at best, which is still more than can be said for Zenoichi the Last, which is basically the cinematic equivalent of watching paint dry. It is so dull and so long and so pointless at the end of the day like there is nothing to that movie uh aside from like a really great opening soundtrack score and that then one yeah like like i mean it's sad to say like the the interesting thing about that film is um the Satoichi films, they're all not concerned about using traditional uh, Japanese um, music. They, they'll they use heavy um, organ sounds. Da-da! And like sometimes it gets, it's really in your, I'd say in your face, but it's in your ears. So it's really interesting. Like it's only Satoichi the last, like, oh, we're going to use era appropriate music. Yeah, the character, he's not particularly interesting. The plot is mostly a bore. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's such a... Like, it is really just, we have this intellectual property, we will use this intellectual property, and none of you will remember this in time. And believe me, it seems that nobody really does. This thing is not easily available in North America, uh, aside from uh, questionable online sources. There's there's one, it's sad to say, this is the actual interesting thing about uh, Zatoichi the Last, is that the... Um, the Yakuza boss in that film is a very old man. That is Tatsuya Nakadai. And, and people are like, who's that? That is, he is like the last living actor from those old 60s movies. He is the uh, man with the gun in Yojimbo. He's that, he's ah. that sociopath. Yeah. He's also, he's in uh, Sanjuro as well. He's the rival in that movie. But also, and he, he is the rival. He's the Ronin in uh, Zatoichi Goes to the Fire Festival. So he, okay. so he's the only guy. So like, they're like, what's an, what's an interesting angle on this? And like, not only do they get an actor who has played opposite Shintaro Katsu before, but also like they pick out like, oh, this is kind of the last star from that era. And he's playing the villain in this movie and a gun even factors into his plot. So I, I, I think I told you, like, I think that they did that intentionally is like, that's kind of a sly reference to like Yojimbo. That is fun to see him because, like, he is a very good actor, but, like, the movie is not interesting otherwise, yeah. Yeah, and that's the shame of it. I mean, he's trying to make this film work. And there's a couple interesting shots or takes, like, and particularly his, I believe it's his introduction to the film where you're sort of in the courtyard and there's this, like, long extended take where eventually you travel inside the house and see what's going on. That's kind of interesting, but the rest of the film is just a slog. And, I mean, it doesn't help that the ver interpretation of Zatoichi in this film basically has nothing in common with the Katsu's version or Beat Takashi's. Like, it's just standard young hero who's missing his... Uh, I mean, basically, his love interest gets fridged uh, yeah. in the first few minutes. And, yeah, that's that's his motivating factor, us, folks. Uh, us having watched these uh, all these films over the course of a year, it really... it It's interesting to me that 
we see what works for this character and what doesn't. And that Shintaro Katsu, for all his faults and eventual vanity and problems, that he was a really compelling actor. And like what makes someone a star? What makes someone a compelling actor? And sometimes you can't even entirely explain it. And here in these last couple films, they're missing it. Um, if I can go into Reitman for the job for a moment, uh, I think I yeah. mentioned it briefly, but like also like <laughs> a totally different kind of character, John Candy yeah. or Rick Moranis. How do you explain those guys appeal that, uh, uh, that they are friendly sort of guys that they can be stars. Like they don't look like leading men, but they are, and that's totally interesting. And similarly, Shintaro Katsu, like, and and even and also a beat Takeshi, they can definitely get the job done. Whereas here's this last guy. There's nothing interesting or fun about his performance. I wonder if he could rise up to that because you know he's he's gone on to have an acting career. So I wonder what wasn't working about it, and and then what made Shintaro Katsu work so well for me. I find that interesting. Well, and I think and I, part of it is that I. It, and it's not just, I mean, uh, this is something I've sort of noticed over time as well, in, uh, up to this point, is that there seems to be this real moving away from actors who with personality, where the idea of, again, like, Katsu is not a conventionally handsome or personality-wise leading man. Same thing with Takashi uh, Kitano there. Um, and we see this over time, where we've, try to sort of strip back the weird rough edges or quirks that some of our better, some of the best leading actors had. And that's the problem with a character like Ichi, where if you strip away that kind of stuff, it can be a very, very stock character without somebody who has that personality to imbue it with uh, from there. And that's something that's, again, is unfortunate uh, when you get into the trying to make these things into big cash grab things and you want to have the broadest possible appeal i think you have to risk having an actor who yeah. might not appeal to everybody uh, in order to make these characters sing so um but that's I my agree two cents on and that one, so i guess in classic film strip style maybe what we should do is do hits and pits uh dave do you have a hit sure sounds good um good question i mean honestly well then how about how about i go you know and hey because because this is a different discussion for you know for both of us because we're talking about a series and not an individual film like i mean the obvious hit for me it's shintaro katsu again um how compelling he was sometimes i can't entirely explain it but just you know, he played a blind man convincingly. I haven't really, we haven't really talked that much about um, the fight, the fight choreography either. But like, you can tell what's happening. Like, like I said, like sometimes there's editing tricks. Oh, the sword w- uh, was over here. Now it's over here. Now they just did a jump cut. They did undercranking. They did stuff like that. When they have their big fights, you can tell it is obvious, especially on now Blu-rays, that the bodies are not connecting to the swords. Which which is totally fine. Like like I like that. Like there there's something so um fun and compelling. Like oh no one. I mean like, oh geez, except for the 1989 film, nobody really got hurt doing these things. It's like oh he like he is a foot away. He yeah. is a foot away from that other guy who the other guy who goes oh you killed me and then falls down. That's how these films work. Uh, I find that totally fun. And Shintaro Katsu I think really works in these films. Uh, who are some of the good directors I had? I had some of them list down. 
Yeah, there were a few of them here. I, I will say one of the things that we should highlight here that we haven't talked about extensively is the music. Now, there are certain ones like Akira Fukube, uh, who uh, is probably the most da, famous da, name da, da, uh, for Western Oh, God, Godzilla! Oh, no! Exactly. Uh, but actually, and I'm probably going to botch his name, uh, Ichiro uh, Saito's work on, I believe he started with Zatoichi in the Chest of Gold. I actually really dug it where, as much as I like a Fukube, and I think there are entries where he gets a little more experimental with what he's doing and certainly tries to draw upon mm, these spaghetti yeah. western influences. But again, like the, the, the further the series go, goes on, like the more the composers really start to play with what goes on, including giving Zatoichi his own. Like after about that 10 was films, too bad. Yeah, like there's a few music. movies uh, uh, towards the end and in the middle where where he has a theme, and they should have if they had played it a bit smarter. Yeah, they should have given him a theme from the outset. Yeah, that would have been good. Yeah, but I mean, having said that, I mean it is like there, there's not a bad score in the bunch. It's just like there's ones that are more noticeable uh, than others there. So I would definitely say. Uh, if you're one, you're watching those. Pay close attention to the music because you are going to get uh, quite a bit of variety uh, over the course of the series. And sort of again, just again, some of it is very period uh, uh, 1960s yeah. period, not as in period the, uh, uh, back, accurate to the uh, sorry, historical uh, to period. There. But back to uh, my idea that you know that Japan and uh, America that they were uh, going back and forth, influencing each other. That it's not a one way street of oh, of uh, these 70s uh, westerns and spaghetti westerns um, lifting from Japanese cinema. There there are a couple of uh, Zatoichi films right in the middle there. I'm sorry, I forget if it was that uh, composer who did these. They just start doing flamenco music. They, they just get into flamenco and they're like, yeah. whoa, like that is, that, that is um, uh, totally a spaghetti western thing. And you realize... Well, this is just like a, a spaghetti western in a different country. Like, like it's totally it fits with what everyone has been doing uh, in the in the decade. It's so interesting. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, there are moments where you get almost the feeling like the whole cast and crew behind these films were just like stop by and watch Fistful of Dollars when it was released, and it's like. Oh no no no! We got to compete now. Oh yeah, uh, oh, the, the game's I keep on, on at interjecting. This point. With, <laughs> I, I've got this little fact. No, like I, I and I forget which movie this is, but in one of them, in the second half, it just turns into High Noon. They just yeah, they just do High Noon. It's like yes. Oh man, and you realize it's like, are they doing High Noon? Like like it's it's uh, Ichi going around. Okay, the bad guys are coming. Who's gonna fight with me? And everyone shutting their doors on him is like. You jerks, I'm here to save you. <laughs> like, like, oh yeah, they're doing high noon. That's awesome. <laughs> exactly. Uh, which is just, I mean, yeah, I mean, it really is that you get the sense of that, which again is odd to think about, but I mean, it really was the case. How much international or oh, cinema yeah. was really an international thing in the 1960s, where I mean, particularly, I mean, in America, where we start having these things from Japan, from Italy and other countries really making their way into closer to the American mainstream that they probably had been in some time. Again, I have to imagine that infusion was happening, yeah, on a, in the same way in Japan yeah. itself. Yeah, uh, I found the name of the directors that I like a lot. It is, it's, it's the two directors they uh, stick around the longest. Uh, they do the most films, and um, they're there in the first and second movie. Kenji Mizumi and Kazuo Mori. They're not, they're not co-directors. They um, they each you know they will trade off and things like that. But those are the two directors who do the most number of films. And you can probably see as you go along through the sixties and seventies movies, they're like, oh yeah, that they know what they're doing. They know how to make these 
compelling film. So I really like those two directors. Well, and understandably so. I mean, they they are really competent. And again, there is some amazing cinematography that you will see throughout the uh, these films. There's a beautiful... I'm trying to remember which film it was that ends with sort of Snowfall and sort of a final face-off, which, it, again, it was such a striking after how many films we finally get the sort of winter set uh, tale there. And it's just like some of the imagery is just gorgeous. Uh, on a related note, uh, probably the most fun sword fight, and I wish I could remember which film it was in, uh, has to be the oh, yeah. bathhouse fight, uh, which is a pure comedic one in terms of like, yep, we're going to go full on slapstick goofy with this, and it works gangbusters. Like, it hits every joke it's trying to uh, achieve at that moment, and is legitimately funny. And again, that's one of the, if I remember correctly, it is a late era entry which makes it surprising given how much the comedy had been toned down by that point. But it, it was nice to see it sort of rear its head. Oh, yeah, uh, and, and uh, Katsu sure. is trying to oh. uh, cover his nakedness while killing guys. And they're going in and out of the water, <laughs> and of course the water's yeah. getting all bloody. And that, of course that's what's going to happen. Yes, that is that is one of the most fun fights in the series, yes. Yeah. But with that, I, I guess this does bring us probably to the pits then. So, I mean... We've been, I think, fairly enthusiastic about the series overall, Ross. So what would you say is probably, what would negative things, if any, do you have to say, I guess, about the series overall? Shintaro Katsu. <laughs> uh, no, no, like, I'm, I'm being kind of uh, cute here and saying like, oh, he's like, like in the, in the classic series, he's the most compelling reason to come back to it. And then also when he has enough control of it, I'm not even conflicted about it, but it is such a... Um, good thing and bad thing at the same time because when he gets so much control over the series he uh, directs uh, the I said the meanest one as uh, Zatoichi in Desperation which is has some really compelling awful ideas that like you can't you can't save these innocents and stuff like that and yeah that as he goes along I th he, he uh, I also watched the TV show and I said like uh, uh, I would be I would be up for watching the entirety of the TV show if I had enough time and also if it was all available in uh, North America but he he really he I think even more than anything else he forgot that the early stuff could be fun and he forgets that, like how how often he chuckles at his own misery or that pe someone trying to take advantage of Zatoichi until he turns the tables on them so as he goes along he forgets all of that and Zatoichi doesn't it just stops making jokes he stops chuckling uh things just get more depressing at times like even in the 1989 film as like we said like like it's an it's an okay film. It's uh, perhaps a bit uninteresting. He has nothing really particularly interesting to say about the situation. It's like when before he did, he had these moments of being philosophical about his blindness and what he wants to accomplish in life, but he can't. And here it's just like, no, I'm just this grizzled hero. It's like, well, we didn't want you always to be a grizzled hero. We wanted you to be this more rounded character who has good things and bad things going on and so so as he goes on like like i i just feel a bit more and more down about him yeah no and i and i can understand that i i think it was definitely a case where i i'll defend in desperation to a degree because i think it is such a yeah. unique entry if not necessarily a personal favorite but it is something where 
I think he's firing on the cylinders he wants to. I would say, yeah, overall, the, the, the tonal balance gets a little lost towards the end of the series. On that re regard, where it is getting maybe a bit too dark at points uh, for its own good. Uh, I would personally say, I, I think... For me, one of the things that, I wouldn't say it's an overall problem, but it's something you need to go in expecting. Uh, the roles of women in these films aren't always the best written. Uh, <laughs> um, and that's I, that's the era that you, you kind of have to expect that going into watching anything coming from this time. Uh, no matter where in the world it's coming from. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's very obvious that most of the time women in these films are either sex workers or they are you know, the endangered daughters of wealthy individuals or uh, the poor daughters of farmers. There's, like, this very, like, set a number of tropes. It's like reading Stanley trying to write women in the 1960s. There were basically two modes. They were either models or actresses. You know, there were no other careers for women at that point. I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. But, you know, I would, I would say that these movies, they give the women better dialogue than Stanley did for women. Fair. That, that, that is it's not wrong. I will give you that. Um, it's just, yeah, it, it is very much a case where the series is limited by, again, the cultural expectations that I, and again, very much the viewpoints of its creators. I mean, these are very male-focused movies. Uh, oh, yeah. I, I, I agree. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I would also say, you know, um, on topics such as the the frequency of women in these movies being low class or you know often sex workers that yeah, there's an interesting thing going on with all these films because people generally do not respect a blind man and uh because of his skills he demands respect and also he demands respect for everybody else he said like like you know he befriends a lot of these women and he says i uh, i will help you give, uh, no matter your uh, situation now that said they still fall into all these tropes but at the same time like it is it's kind of novel to like no no that these women and all these other low class people that they are deserving of respect and uh, uh, livelihoods and so and Zatoichi's going to fight for them well absolutely not to take not to take away your point at all just just that like like there's there uh in terms of class, that Zatoichi, that uh, maybe to sort of round off one of my last big things to mention about this, is that uh, it's been pointed out, Ichi, that in in a very stratified uh, class system, that a blind masseur, that he really gets to meet the low class and the high class because he we haven't really touched on he also he gives people massages and that is often how he learns information he discovers oh this is the bad boss of the town here is uh someone who has something going on i'm going to find some information from them and often the yakuza and the corrupt officials they treat him very poorly but it is interesting that, that yeah that that's what ichi does he's like a more modern man. He's thrust a hundred years back in time. And he tells these rich jerks, no, all the low class people, we all deserve respect as well. Don't push us around. Otherwise I will harm you and I will defend all of them. And so there's an interesting class thing there where, uh, doesn't exist in a lot of other movies. So I really like that, that he can meet the richest people in town and, uh, officials, uh, from the Shogunate, or he can, uh, become friends with sex workers and thieves and he shows everyone you know a certain level of respect well you know and that, that, you're absolutely right and that is one of the things where yeah it is surprisingly respectful towards the things like sex work it does this is a very non-judgmental 
uh, film series yeah. in that way, which is something that is very progressive for it. But it's also one of the, I just find it's one of those things that gets tempered with very progressive for what it's trying to do, and then every so often it reminds it, oh yeah, this is still, you know, not the mid-60s. And, uh, yeah, Katsu is very much a man of his time in terms of how he approaches things in the uh, That Definitely too, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so I mean, that would be my big thing. Any other uh, sort of final uh, pits for this, uh, Ross? I think we should say goodnight. I think we should also say uh, happy holidays to everyone out there. And uh, Dave, thank you very much for watching these films in the year 2020. Well, thank you very much for <laughs> that, inviting me along. That, oh, absolutely. Well, this was a lot of fun with you in this year that needs to end and we need to have a better 2021. Yeah. Absolutely. But also, and you know, thank you and the late Andrew Kanegeezer. I wonder if we'll ever hear from him again. Maybe you've got some extra recordings from him. Um, uh, but but thank you. you uh, Film Strips is one of my favorite podcasts, so thank you for all of that. Oh, thank you very much. And it's likewise the same thing with Reitman for the Job, which, again, folks, make sure you are subscribed uh, if you haven't done so as of yet. Thanks all around. And so, yeah, oh yeah, the something that I thought we would touch on, but we just haven't yet, so I will say it here. I've got an Ivan Reitman connection because I, maybe you don't have a connection to your films, but I've got a connection for mine. So in 1989, uh, yeah, I, I forgot that it was in the same year as uh, the last uh, Katsu movie. There was also an American movie called <laughs> Blind Fury. Yes, there was. And you, you twigged me onto this and I watched it and it is a bad movie. You know, it's, it's a bad movie and it stars Rutger Hauer and he is super charming in this movie, which is a weird thing to say. Like, oh, this movie is bad. Oh, but he's he's a lot of fun in this. So that that is very good. Um, what happened in this movie is the actor Tim Matheson yeah. liked these movies. He liked them as much as Frank Miller liked these movies too. Tim Matheson, Otter from Animal House, liked these movies. So, and he is one of the guys we can prove. No, he actually did pay the rights to like. I want to remake one of these movies as an American movie, and um, it's it's another one with a kid, and it becomes this '89 action movie called Blind Fury, <laughs> where Rutger Hauer, I don't. Actually, is he supposed to play an American? Yeah. Because he's a Vietnam War vet. <laughs> this is what... But it's Rutger Hauer. Anyway, so Rutger Hauer, he's... he's um, uh, I think he's in a chopper. <laughs> I, I forget how... But yeah, he goes blind in Vietnam. And the people... In, and the Vietnamese people in a small town uh, teach him to sword fight, despite the fact that... <laughs> They, they kind of teach him the ways of the samurai despite their, them being Vietnamese. Yes. So there, there, there are some problems there too. But anyway, <laughs> Rutger Hauer, he goes blind in Vietnam. He learns to fight with a cane sword like Zatoichi. And it takes a lot of beats from a particular movie from Zatoichi Challenge. A perfectly fine, another fine entry in the series. It's, it, 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 it's okay. I was surprised how many like, oh, this scene is from that movie. This scene is a lift from that movie as well. And Rutger Howard goes along uh, trying to uh, save this kid from the bad guys. And that's just what it is. And he's they've all got guns and he's got his uh, cane sword. And yeah, so that's Blind Fury. So my Ivan Reitman connection, Ivan Reitman produced Animal House. Tim Matheson was one of the stars and Tim Matheson just really liked the Zatoichi series. So there we go. Uh, it, it It's a fun movie to watch as well. I prefer the other movies to it. Yeah. yeah. I will take Blind Fury over uh, the latter two of the post uh, 
shit too. Oh, absolutely. No, it's it's way more fun than Itchy and Zatoichi the Last. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, if only I just love the notion that somebody's like, well, how do we get him to have, be a sword fighter in contemporary America? Oh, Vietnam? Sure, why not? Uh, just go have fun with it. Uh, <laughs> why not, indeed, yes. So, so yes, uh, so, Ross, let's just say people want to get in contact with you. Where could they do so? On Twitter, at Ross May Writer. Yep. That's it. Yep. Uh, likewise with me, that's at 24 Panels. Uh, I'm always up for a civil conversation, and you're all lucky Doctor Who season isn't upon us for quite some time yet. You can think. It's Christmas time! You can tweet about it now! Yeah. There's gotta be a Christmas special! Well, that or a New Year special. We haven't been told which yet, but um, something is coming. So yes, please feel free to join in and speculate with me, otherwise you'll just find me complaining about still not knowing what really ties Time Lord Victorious altogether. I'm sorry, I had to do it, Ross. I had to get it in there somewhere. Uh, anyways, uh... I understand. If we want to say rate and review, say Reitman for the job, where can they go do that? Wait, people can rate and review these things? Ah, uh, yes! I don't know how... I don't pay enough attention to the to the um, statistics or whatever of my <laughs> podcast. Fair enough. Um, you can, however, rate and review film strips on iTunes or whatever podcasting service you use. Uh, Five-star reviews help bump us up the charts and please help, help us keep the lights on. Uh, so, uh, and you can, as far as I know, do the same thing for Reitman for the job. I assume... That sounds right. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> yeah so, um, so, with that, uh, normally this would be about the point where I'd probably throw to Andrew and say something about what final words you have for us for that do you have any final comments for our listeners at home what if i just said no <laughs> that would work uh <laughs> no i'll do it <laughs> andrew's not here so uh, someone someone's got to say yeah. it remember everyone adventure may scare you but monotony will kill you and how will it kill you dave uh probably with a sword uh maybe even slash a few candles out turn into darkness then we get a swordsman who's also a slasher. It'll be cool one way or the other. Bye. It'll be incredibly cool. Happy holidays, everyone. 